Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there in the Rumble Room. We're also on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the Vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila, Chan, along with the original do-rag conservative Atomic MAGA, Malik Abdul. Jamal Thomas is, I think, heading back from Brazil today. So with that, this is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. A lot of news to get to. We've got a, a great guest coming up at 7.15, yeah, which is a, a little, little bit on earlier. Yeah, a little on the earlier side this time. Yeah. But I don't blame him. It's on. He's on the other side of the world. We're going to get the latest update on what's happening out of Pakistan. So you won't want to miss that because he is on the ground there. Right. So we want to know what's happening with Imran Khan. Was it bad? I mean, any shooting, I suppose, is bad. Yep. But uh, especially when you're a cricketer, when you're an athlete... An hmm. athlete with geopolitical knowledge. Yeah, right. Can't beat that. <laughs> the world's attention. And you know what? A few months ago, Shinzo Abe mm. in Japan shot mm-hmm. dead in the street mm-hmm. while he was giving a speech, right? Well, so, it's a good thing we'll be able to get some updates on what's happening on the ground. Yeah. So you guys don't go anywhere at 7.15. It's a different time block, but we're going to bring in our guest out of Pakistan at 7.15. So with that, let's head over to today's top headlines. Let's start with some domestic news here. Uh, Former President Donald Trump, who is, by the way, very much alive. I don't know. (laughs) And I'm saying that because there was this, I don't know if it was a viral meme or I don't know what, how it all started, but fact checkers were saying, somebody was saying that Donald Trump died. Oh, wow. (laughs) But then he showed up at this speech, I believe in Iowa. So he showed up for a speech and and we're going to read an excerpt here. So on Thursday, showing up very much alive. And uh, he said, very, very, very probable that he's going to run in 2024. So he says, quote, I ran twice. I won twice and did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016, and likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in history of our country by far. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? You know, he adds in that, okay. So, of course, he got a big old standing ovation. Uh, So this is Trump talking at a rally in Iowa. And then he added, get ready. That's all I'm telling you very soon. Get ready. So I that all but does it for me. Like he's he's running. But the reason candidates don't usually announce super early is because there are other implications once you officially throw your hat in the ring. So you have to meet all kinds of checks and balances. and FEC regulations. Mm-hmm. So you can't officially announce. So I get why he's holding off. And also because of the midterms. Because I'm sure there's political pressure. So 
Donald Trump very likely to make it official <laughs> probably Wednesday morning. <laughs> and then over to California, Canadian citizen David DePape, who attacked Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband at their home in San Francisco, was in the United States illegally, according to U.S. media outlets, citing the Department of Homeland Security. According to a statement from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, DePape will be deported from the country after his criminal cases are resolved. Quote, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, lodged an immigration detainer on Canadian national David DePape with San Francisco County Jail November 1, following his October 28 arrest, according to DHS officials. Then, new poll, more than half of Americans, 56%, believe that a third party majority, or excuse me, a third major party is needed in the U.S. amid dissatisfaction with how the current political parties are going. We know, I would say it's a duopoly, Democrats and Republicans, take that how you may. But there are two parties in power, Democrats and Republicans. 56% of Americans polled say they want another party to choose from. Folks, there are lots of parties to choose from. Uh, It's the system that doesn't allow them to rise. Um, All right, so 61% of adults find the Republican Party's work unfavorable. 57% disapprove of the Democrats' party. And an impressive rise from a survey in 1994 that showed just 6% of Americans having unfavorable views. So apparently in the 90s, whatever party you belonged to, you thought very favorably of them. Not so much the case anymore. This time the figure is standing at just over a quarter. So a lot of people dissatisfied even with their own party. The political polarization plaguing America has been seen by analysts as resulting from the two-party system in the country with some experts questioning whether the U.S. was even a democracy anymore. Then to international news, the UNGA, United Nations General Assembly, on Thursday voted to condemn the U.S. blockade on Cuba, which has been in place shortly after the Socialist Revolution swept out of power the U.S.-backed government back in 1959. Now, in the vote, 185 nations came out against U.S. policy. The only two countries to vote against the resolution were, of course, the United States itself, not going to vote against itself, and Israel. Two nations, however, also abstained from that vote. Shouldn't be a surprise. Ukraine abstained, where we know a U.S.-backed nationalist government has held power from a coup back in 2014. The other one that abstained, Brazil, where the anti-communist government of Jair Bolsonaro has two months left in power. And then over to China, where the president there is confident that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing will strengthen mutual understanding and trust between the countries. According to President Xi Jinping, he met with Scholz earlier this morning, local time, of course, in the Great Hall of the People 
in the Chinese capital of Beijing. Quote, You are the first European leader to visit China after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China. And it is also your first visit to China after you assume the post. I am confident that the visit will strengthen mutual understanding and trust of the two countries, deepen practical cooperation in different areas, and outline plans for the further development of China-Germany relations, Mr. Xi told the meeting with Schultz, uh, as quoted by CCTV, China Central Television. The Chinese leader added that China and Germany must work together in the unstable international environment and chaos. Then the G7 plus Australia have agreed to set a fixed price instead of a floating price for Russian oil upon concluding the price cap deal later in November. While the initial price has not yet been set, the group said the coalition has agreed the price cap will be a fixed price that will be reviewed regularly rather than a discount to an index, according to reports. Quote, this will increase market stability and simplify compliance to minimize the burden on market participants. While the initial price has not been set, it is expected to be agreed upon in the coming weeks. Now that cap is set to come into effect starting December 5th. What that price number, the cap number will look like, we don't know. But they're, they've now just agreed that it will be a fixed price starting December 5th. Then French President Emmanuel Macron's approval ratings have dropped to its lowest number in November. A study conducted by Ilab showed on Thursday, according to that poll, Macron's approval rating was just 32% in November after falling six points from the previous two months. Quote, this is the lowest level since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Ilab CEO Bernard Sananez was quoted saying, then this day in history, back in 1879, the African-American inventor Thomas Elkins patents the refrigerating apparatus. How about that? Your food is cold and even frozen for weeks, months, years. <laughs> I've seen some people's freezers years. Thanks to Mr. Elkins. Thank you, Mr. Elkins. Thank you, thank you, thank you no longer just an ice box. Back in 1922, Howard Carter discovers the intact tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun in Egypt. That's pretty cool. Then this day in history, back on 2008, Barack Obama becomes the first African-American, I'm going to also say the first minority in general, to be elected president of the United States, defeating Republican candidate John McCain. That will do it for this morning's headlines on Friday, November 4th. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I didn't actually know that today is the day he was elected for the first time. So I'll have to share that on social media. That's see, our this day in histories. We have some good stuff. I often share it. Yeah. And people's like, oh, wow. It's like, yeah, I get it from Michelle. Like, yeah. So it's a good thing. Good yeah, thing, though. I don't know... Well, this is also my my anniversary. So happy anniversary, husband. Well, happy anniversary. Like, 
Well, I would say, I mean, what do you have planned? But then normally when I ask um, people that I know with kids, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, so what are you exactly. planning? Like, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get a movie in the house. Yes. In. Like, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you about the movie thing, too, though. So a movie is typically about 90 minutes, right? More or less. Mm-hmm. Plus, plus a few minutes, minus a few minutes, but more or less 90 minutes. And I tell people with, I mean, I'm a newer parent, but for a 90-minute movie, plan three hours. Double the time. Well, and, and by movie, I mean watching at home so you can pause. Because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. forget it if you think you're getting to the movie Oh, because theater. being able to sit that still for... Well, it's not like we're letting him watch the movies with us. He's doing something else in the other room. He's playing, whatever. But, yeah. Plan a lot longer. <laughs> so that it sounds like that wouldn't work, just sitting there and well well is he into like little um you know kid shows i know they watch a lot of things on television like is he any anything like animation well yeah yeah, yeah. he's a normal you know four-year-old in that sense and very abnormal in a lot of ways but he because he's largely a covid kid mm-hmm. right because oh because he's, cause he's oh, wow. he just turned four and so covid so his formative years were yeah, oh wow were locked up in the house so he is very much used to interacting with adults in the house. Mm-hmm. And he's not, he's kind of disinterested in, in children. So, yeah, for, yeah, we don't have any plans for our anniversary. We'll be celebrating Barack Obama's election. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. We, we just, I'm not, I'm also not like a big, I'm not very, I don't want to discriminate against others who are lovey-dovey and sappy. I'm not a sappy, like... So you don't necessarily need the... Okay. I'm not a super sentimental lady. I got it. I got (laughs) it. No, there there are plenty of women out there who who they they can appreciate it, but they don't necessarily need the, you know... Yeah, I'm not like the flowers and whatever kind of girl... For some reason, I feel like Barack Obama would want flowers for his. See, you seem anniversary. you seem like a good book kind of girl. Like yes, just, that's that's what you seem like. It's like, yes. oh, I read a very good book. Yes, <laughs> I am that girl. So yeah, I'm not. Yeah, we're not. You know, even if we had time, and and perhaps maybe someday when my son's older and and he's not like going, mom, and he'll talk to me about whatever he's, you know, doing, looking at whatever book he's looking at. Uh, outside of that, you know, maybe we'll go in the future. Right now, I'm not the most You're okay. sentimental gal. That's I'm okay. happy. I'm very happy to sit at home and just relax. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you very much. Uh, to many more, husband. I never say his name because he didn't ask for a media job. Right. So Smart move. Yeah. I did. So, husband, happy anniversary. He just, we go by husband. I love it. <laughs> Even in my phone, husband. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. I got to get a drink of water. I think the first week back, having not spoken mm-hmm. this much over the course of a month, getting a little hoarse. Yeah, those are muscles. They need they to are. be. Yeah. They are. Uh, so we'll leave that there for just a minute. We're, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. You are here with Malik Abdul and Manila Chan. 
while we're waiting for our guest, we decided to kind of have a little moment to talk about, you know, just the latest trending news. And my story is Manila, did you hear about Sonny Hostin? Hostin oh, Hostin from I The View. I think it's Hostin, right? Hostin. The View lady. Yeah, yes. she used to be on CNN, I think. So, Sonny Hostin, <laughs> apparently, I think this was yesterday. Um, it was either yesterday or Wednesday. She was talking about the election. Of course, now The View has a conservative who had been on there, Alyssa Farah or Farah. They Um, have a conservative now? Yeah, so they have a permanent conservative, and her name is Alyssa Farah. She has some sort um, of—I think she worked in the Trump White House or something like that. Um, So she was there, and obviously they were talking about the election. They were talking about the um, what we've been talking about for the past week now, about how suburban white women are moving to Ah, the Republican Party. So Sonny Hostin compares them, and I'm going to find the quote, but Sonny Hostin compared white Republican women to cockroaches. Oh. Yeah, like literally— like literally cockroaches. Oh, and here it is. She says, what's also surprising to me is the abortion issue. I read a poll just yesterday that white Republican suburban women are now going to vote Republican. Wait, but if they're Republican, wouldn't they vote Republican? Yes. But I mean, you're trying to, you know, add some logic to this and there is none. But she goes on to say, it's almost like roaches voting for raid, right? And this is what she says on national TV. Now, you know, not to go, not to bring in Kanye, but to bring in Kanye. <laughs> okay, so yes. she said something. What's a that, Friday without Kanye, Malik? Well, of course, any day without him. <laughs> but Kanye said something that people considered, uh, you know, anti-Semitic, yes. and he offended people. You know, I'm not here to tell people what to and what not to be offended by when you're the offended, you know, when you're a member of the offended group. Right. Sonny Hostin on national television calls white women. Well, just white read, take, take out the, the suburban and even the Republican part. Just white. She women. calls white women roaches. She compares them to roaches. Can you imagine if on that same network a conservative, uh, 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 Carrie Lake? Let's just pick someone. Carrie okay. Lake. Carrie Lake Hypothetical, was, folks. Yes. Very Carrie Lake was on The View, and <laughs> she compared black women to roaches. Can you or imagine the response? Latino women. The LGBT community, somebody made a similar statement any about any group. She was allowed to do it. There is no backlash. And this is the type of stuff that we normally see in politics. Now, who am I? Now, I I imagine that people will say, oh, boy, there's that black guy, you know, trying to defend white people. But it's really not about trying to defend white people. I'm not going to make allowances. If it's okay, if it's not okay. Goose and gander. Right. If it's not okay to make certain comments and stereotypical comments or offensive comments about one group of people, then it should not be okay to do it about another. But when it comes to white, when it comes to white people, particularly, though. It's okay. You can actually get on television and you can talk about white people and white privilege and how white people are trying to do this. And you can generalize them as a group. White devil all the time. Yeah. And and that is a group and it is allowed. It's allowed. And so there is no sort of pushback. So I'm actually sympathetic to 
the idea, you know, I have, um, you know, obviously I have white friends, white colleagues and everything. And I'm sensitive to the idea when I hear people just generalize white people, as I would any group. For instance, you know, the, if I have friends, you know, who are Asian. If someone just generalized Asians, and, and it's a difference between, and, you know, not defending stereotypical jokes that you may make, that's different than in this political context, referring to people as roaches, but is consistent with what the Democratic Party does. Whether we're roaches, whether we're deplorable, whether I can't be black, this is the consistent thing that the Democratic Party does because they demean and insult voters. You can say on the Republican side, the Republicans may generalize and talk about Democrats or the left or, you know, leftist policies and all of those sort of things, but they don't get in into personalizing it against voters. Like love or hate Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't, you didn't hear him calling Democratic voters these type of names. He may have talked about the Democratic Party and the left and all of that, but he didn't single out voters. Group, yeah. They single out groups, like whether it's white well, people. And they're allowed to do it. Far be it for me to defend Sonny Hostin. Asuncion. <laughs> but, but she's also not a politician herself, number one. Number mm-hmm. two, she is a TV show talk host. Yes. Right? Who's to say this is truly how she feels, that this isn't some charade, some charade that she's putting up on TV to be as inflammatory as well, of possible. Of course it is. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And, and, <laughs> I mean, worst case is she really does feel that way. No, I believe, but. no, I be, it, it's probably a mixture of both. She's so upset. She's so angry by the idea that white Republican women who, who these white suburban women who actually voted for Barack Obama. They d- d- let's, well, let's be yeah. clear. <laughs> you know, they, they voted for Barack Obama. Right. They, they voted well, for Barack Obama. They moved away. They recoiled <clears throat> from Donald Trump in 2020 because they were so put off by his personality. They flew. Right. It's like, they no, we're not doing this now. And so they voted for Joe Biden. But because of the economy, it's because of in, inflation, and, and because of crime, and all of these, um, what's happening in schools, parental well, choice. There are also the NIMBYs, right? The not-in-my-backyard folks. Where, there are. Because the Biden HUD is, you know, trying to, we'll say, integrate mm-hmm. uh, socioeconomic classes mm-hmm. in suburban America. Mm-hmm. And the NIMBY folks were like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, the people that would normally vote Democrat. Oh, tell me about because it. Because we're know. like, oh, we have BLM uh, flags out front of our house. We have rainbow flags. We love everybody. But just don't come out here. But then Joe Biden's HUD is like, we're looking at buying property in, you know, in suburban America to do housing development, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, whoa, wait a minute. You're very right about that. You want poor people? So HUD was uh, proposing, well, considering proposing a similar rule when during the Trump administration, (laughs) and it was during the 2020 election cycle, and Donald Trump came out and made comments about them moving to the uh, moving out to suburban communities. You know, it was that type of thing. Now, even that. And I had friends at the time. It's like, see, look at Donald Trump. He's talking about, you know, they don't want black people around. So I said, look, you live first of all. You know, because it was a couple of friends. I said, first of all, 
You live in McLean, and you <laughs> live in Mitchellville, Maryland. Okay, wait, wait. If people don't know McLean, it is a very well-to-do area it's in one Fairfax of the well- County. One of the wealthiest in the country. Yes. So you find big, sprawling estates, a yes. lot of acreage. Multi-million Multi- dollar yes. property. These are like crib-style. Okay, I'm dating myself, but still. No. It is crib-style stuff that you saw on MTV in the 90s. Right. I mean, beautiful homes. And I was like, bro, (laughs) you live in McLean. You don't want section, because what it is, it was um, like um, section eight housing. Yes. That's what it was like, section eight housing. I was like, you moved out of D.C. because you did, you actually stopped renting. Because, I mean, (laughs) stop, um, you stopped. You got rid of like a townhouse or something. Right. He was a landlord and he did not like the the idea of renting to (laughs) section eight because He's had he had some bad tenants. Now, of bad course, experience. this is not for every person who's on Section no. Eight, but he had bad experience. But I was like, bro, you don't want him. You don't want what, Section Eight tenants out there. What did you say there. his ethnicity was? He's black. Oh, yeah. So that adds the the layer, right? No, that's so, a, and that's so. Black people talk about you just like black people want police in our communities. Yes. So I don't know if you know, you know this, Malik, but I have I I did real estate for many years. When I I couldn't find a journalism job and make ends meet, I I learned real estate and it it helped pay the bills. And I learned a lot, a lot. Right. Um, And one of the things I noticed. With some of my clients, minority clients was. When they were able to move from renting, let's say, in a, and I'm from a bad area, from the said bad area to, let's say, the west side of Los Angeles by Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, Mm. they up and go. And they're minority folks themselves, right? Many of my clients, minority folks. And they don't want to stay in the community. They don't want to, you know, maybe build up their house Mm -hmm. or... They want to leave. They want to leave it So go to to white-dominated areas. And I can tell you uh, examples of that. So remember, we were talking about the water crisis in Jackson, and there are a lot of people saying, well, you know, it was because of white flight in Jackson. You know, they don't have the same type of, um, you know, being able to pay the same type of um, taxes because the, um, you know, the money essentially left. So not being able to fund certain services. I had, I was saying at the time, I was um, in school. I had friends whose families moved out to the suburbs during the era when it was a lot of crime, when it was a lot of drugs, and these were all they were all black. They went to the suburbs because they were fleeing the same thing. Prince George's County, Maryland, and here in the DMV is the largest, um, one of the wealthiest counties for blacks in the entire country. They have, I think, from maybe four, four of the top ten. Um, they were largely populated by government workers from D.C., so mm, black government yeah. workers from D.C., yeah. because that was during the era of Mary and Barry, and then at uh, some okay. point the federal government came in and became an employer, so the federal government was one of the largest employers that helped shape the middle class in the DMV area. Well, those black people sold their brownstones, yep. their row houses, that, you know, whether in LaDroit Park and all over the city, they sold their homes to move out for not just safer communities. They wanted to be able to raise families, so have larger homes. All of that type of stuff matters. So people like, so when you were talking about move, yeah, every, and it's across 
ethnicities, like it's not a racial component, this idea of white flight. Well, why would I, if I had the means to move away from an area that's big, like on crime, why wouldn't I move? Let, let me give you one last anecdote because we, I just heard we have our, our guests oh, on great, the line. Oh, great, great. Uh, we'll take a quick break right after this. However, last note on this. Uh, so Manila, realtor Manila, uh, I had a mixed race couple um, move to an area in Los Angeles called Baldwin Hills. Okay, yeah, I've heard Have of Baldwin heard of it? Hills. It's Isn't it the like black a black Beverly right, Hills? Right, right, right. The Black Beverly Hills. So I sold them a house there. We, we, you know, and as a realtor, you canvass the areas. You get to know the neighborhood, right? So they're not black, but a mixed race couple. Anyway, not black. Moved to the the Black Beverly Hills, Baldwin Hills, known famously for having uh, people like at one point Urban Magic Johnson mm-hmm. living there. Bill Cosby up in those hills, but Baldwin Hills. Surrounded, however, it is hood, mm. right? Like up the hill, Bill Cosby and stuff back then, right? Back in the day, before he was gross. Um, and below the hill, still pretty rough, but on the hill, Black Beverly Hills, okay? They move in there. And slowly, the, quote, gentrification, and let me tell you, the, the Black folk that live there would tell me, they're like, what race are your clients? Mm. <laughs> they, were, they were like, hmm, a lot of white folk moving here. <laughs> That's all I will I say. I see that. They weren't, they weren't mad, but they were definitely like, hmm, okay. And fast forward now, 10 whatever years it's been, a lot of white migration to the Black oh, wow. Beverly Hills. It's no longer the Black Beverly Hills. Mm. So uh, I have mixed feelings about that. People sold and made a lot of money. So good for them. Yeah. Um, but that little pocket of Black Beverly Hills is no more. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break. We're going to go to our next guest, Hamza Azar Salam from Pakistan Daily. He is on the horn. He's going to give us an update with what's going on in Pakistan. Imran Khan, we're going to talk all about that. Don't go anywhere. Fault Lines, Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. We're going to be bringing in our next guest is Hamza Azar Salam. He is a Pakistani journalist, the founder and editor at the Pakistan Daily, and a former for, former reporter for the Pakistan's The News International. Hamza, good morning, or at least good afternoon to you. Hi, good afternoon, Manila. How are you? It's great to speak to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, when we heard the news yesterday, uh, the breaking news about Imran Khan being shot, I mean, there were so many questions. We're about 24 hours later now. Can you give us an update to the shooting that occurred that uh, I guess at least one bullet hit Imran Khan? Mm, Yes, yes. Not uh, just one bullet, but according to senior PTI leaders, uh, Imran Khan was shot three times. And he's in the hospital right now. He's uh, receiving medical treatment. Uh, but uh, thankfully, he's out of danger. And it's not a critical wound. So, uh, you know, he can still walk and uh, his vital signs uh, are all right, uh, according to his uh, medical team. And he's also expected to address uh, the people of Pakistan in 15 or 20 or 30 minutes. So uh, the people of Pakistan wait to hear from Imran Khan now. Wow, that's a tough 
man, I think he's about, what, 70 years old and to have been injured with three bullets and within 24 hours coming out. I mean, whatever you think of him, right? I mean, we all condemn any kind, I would say any violence, much less political violence. But this is a 70-year-old man who was shot three times and in 24 hours, he's going to come give a speech. Do you think there is any threat of danger? Are people worried that this could cause any sort of, I don't know, maybe other violence in the crowd? Well, you know, I just left the governor house, Lahore, even earlier when your producers were calling me. I was reporting from the ground and I just left 30 seconds ago after this interview started. And uh, the protesters belonging to uh, Imran Khan's party, they for- they tried to force their way Inside Governor House, they tried to clash with police. They broke CCTV cameras. They broke the lights. So, yes, it is possible that, uh, you know, we see violent scenes in Pakistan. However, most PTI supporters have been peaceful. And Imran Khan has also instructed them uh, to remain peaceful. But, you know, when uh, their leader is shot, you know, emotions are high. Passions start flaring. And one thing leads to the other. And then the situation gets out of control. Yeah, absolutely. And and. You know, you and I were, were chit-chatting a little bit yesterday. And sadly, when I heard the news, I immediately thought uh, the history that you have in Pakistan, for example, with uh, Benazir Bhutto, who was also, you know, killed during a, a similar convoy or parade. Uh, what do people in Pakistan, you know, is this like a sensitive subject for people in Pakistan, for voters in Pakistan? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, Our politicians have always been at the receiving end of violence. Uh, Our first prime minister, Liaquat Ali Khan, he was shot in Rawalpindi. Benazir Bhutto, our prime minister, she was shot in Rawalpindi. And now Imran Khan, he's, you know, whether people like him or not, you know, he's an icon in Pakistan. People follow him, people listen to him. So even his critics, and I also include myself in this list, even his critics can't afford to uh, lose him like this because he's part of Pakistan's political fabric, and not just political fabric, but also a social and national fabric. So yes, you know, this uh, this assassination attempt has struck a nerve in uh, common Pakistanis. What about the political situation um, surrounding Imran Khan? I mean, I, I don't believe there has been a motive that has been revealed by the shooter. We don't even, we don't know if it's a crazed fan, you know, because sometimes people um, attempt to hurt the the celebrity or famous person that they actually really like. It's not out of hate sometimes. But do we know anything about, you know, what this person's ideas or ideology is? Is this opposing political party? Um, Is this being motivated by anything that you can see um, from your experience reporting? Uh, Yes, you know, yesterday uh, the police leaked uh, his confessional video and not one video, but several videos, which was very unprecedented. And uh, according to the uh, police, you know, he's a religious fanatic. Uh, There were uh, some uh, religious videos in his uh, phone uh, when he was apprehended. And uh, he said in that confessional video that he shot uh, Imran Khan because uh, the music was playing when the call to prayer started and that angered him. But he kept on changing uh, his statement. But also, Manila, like I'm an investigative journalist. I've been investigating a lot of Uh, crimes and, you know, a lot of the claims the government makes. And most of the time we tend to believe our government. But this time, you know, I've been very surprised with with the information they've given to the media because it just doesn't add up. If we look at the 
the video of the shooting it clearly shows that an automatic weapon uh, was shot first uh, there was a burst of uh, uh, over a dozen bullets which resulted in 14 injuries and one death now the uh, shoot the confessional video of the shooter he had a pistol and he he's considered to be the second shooter but the police and the authorities are telling journalists that there is only one shooter which is uh, you know causing suspicions of a cover up yeah and hamza i was actually reading about the idea that khan's people believe that there is a second there was a second shooting based on a second shooter, shooter yeah. based on that video but do you think that this is why khan himself because i was reading that apparently he's alleging that it's the military's interservices is a spy agency and the prime minister himself and the interior minister who were behind the attack now i understand typically people tend to blame the government but do you think that especially in light of what you're saying um the things that don't necessarily seem right from the government's response do you think that there's any truth to what khan is alleging about the government's involvement but you know it's such a, a precarious situation because in punjab the government is not of mia shabash sharif or rana sanaullah who have been named by imran khan and also he's named a senior intelligence official but the government in punjab is of imran khan himself and his ally choudhry parvez ali who's the chief minister of punjab now all the police of punjab comes under this coalition government which is ultimately led by uh, imran khan so yes it is definitely possible that uh, there are political players in this it is also uh, possible that some of imran khan's allies uh, are uh, unfortunately uh, part of the conspiracy to you know uh, assassinate him because this is a very clearly an assassination attempt of the most popular leader in pakistan right now hamza this i mean it was kind of chilling the way you described how the government is responding and and how frustrating it must be as a journalist it made me think of our our own and when i say our own i mean america's collective uh conscience and collective memory is on our president jfk who as you know there's so many conspiracy theories around his murder to this day right they say there it's not one shooter and there's so many so much evidence and and then president biden recently is getting sued for not releasing the J, more jfk information because it's uh, it's past its expiry of when you how long you can withhold the information like 50 years or something. So this makes me think of JFK. So it's, you know, there's implications here if why would the government want him out? Why would the government want Imran Khan dead? Well, I think there's a very clear answer uh, to this question because uh, Imran Khan has caused uh, a lot of problems for the people who actually rule Pakistan. Now we've had this conversation before Uh, that you know in pakistan it's the military establishment which is the ultimate ruler uh, of this country and many people believe that the civilian government <clears throat> it's just a front uh, it's it's a puppet government even imran khan's government itself was considered to be a puppet government and the hand behind uh, the government is the military establishment so imran khan is challenging the real powers of pakistan uh, you could even infer that he's leading a revolution in pakistan where he is uh, right now he is a uh, demanding power uh, for the people which is why uh, the people who don't want true democracy in pakistan uh, they do not want someone like imran khan who's popular and who has credibility uh, to you know say all these things and to challenge their power you know what and hamza you raised something because it's an interesting just to position because many of 
Khan's political opponents say that it was that he was helped to power by the military yes. when he was elected in 2018, something that obviously he denies. But Khan um, now apparently believes that the military turned against him as he began to pursue a foreign policy that involved drawing closer to Russia, um, which he says that mm-hmm. alarmed both the military and Washington. What do you think about that? Because Khan actually, this is, you know, what Khan has been putting out there. Do you think that there's any truth to that? Like, because he's been seeming to draw a closer relationship to Russia, then mm-hmm. that that's where, because, yeah, and, I, and I'm saying this, I was, uh, this is a report coming from the Wall Street Journal that was talking about that. But do you think that there's any truth to that? Well, you know, the timing does raise some questions. So, and I, as a journalist, I hardly believe in coincidences. So, uh, Prime Minister Khan meets Vladimir Putin in uh, Moscow, and a few weeks later, he is uh, removed from power. Now, he was removed in a, a democratic way. It was a vote of no confidence. I was there at the parliament uh, while this uh, vote of no confidence was happening. So, it was a democratic transition uh, from one government. Uh, to the other. And also Imran Khan has made a claim of a a U.S. cipher uh, which was sent uh, to uh, Pakistan's former ambassador uh, to the U.S. Now, I've spoken to a lot of security officials, uh, officials of the Foreign Office, and recently there was a press conference by uh, the country's Director General of the Inter-Services Intelligence, the ISI. Now, that man is considered to be the second most powerful man of the country, and he has categorically denied the existence uh, of that cipher. And as far as the U.S. conspiracy is uh, against Imran Khan is concerned, even his own president, the president of Pakistan, is a PTI worker. He's a follower of, of Imran Khan. So even he doesn't uh, believe in uh, in this uh, uh, conspiracy. So I think uh, we shouldn't jump to conclusions. But yes, it is possible that, you know, the U.S. has been involved in uh, changing the regimes of uh, other countries in the past. So, you know, we can never rule this out. Hamza, as you point out, uh, the way, because this is a parliamentary system, uh, we can look at uh, England, right? For example, in the UK, Boris Johnson, same thing, right? They, through a democratic process within the parliamentary system, Mm -hmm. they pushed Boris Johnson out of power. They voted in Liz Truss. That lasted less than a head of lettuce. And then they, same thing, they now have voted in ushered in Rishi Sunak through democratic processes. And I'm not, I'm not saying there's any conspiracy behind uh, what's happened in the UK, but that's just the similar process. Am I, could I compare the two governments? Is that how it works the same way? Uh, yes, but there's a small difference because uh, Rishi Sunak is also a member of the Conservative Party. Liz Truss was a member of the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson uh, was a mem- is a member of the Conservative Party. So they all belong to the same party. In Pakistan, what happened was that Imran Khan's coalition was defeated when some of his own partners defected and they joined a new coalition. So the leader of the opposition, while Imran Khan was a prime minister, became the new uh, prime minister. So it was uh, an entire change in the civilian government, change of faces, change of ministers and change of political parties. Is that common? I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, most people in the West will say, you know, especially here in the U.S., whoever's listening out there, most people are not very familiar with uh, Pakistani politics. And I think as the years grow, especially after um, 
after the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. That's really what brought Pakistan to the attention of many Americans. So many of us are not super familiar with how things are done. Is it common in Pakistan to have something like what happened to Imran Khan, the way he was pushed out of power, and then the opposite, the opposition party comes to power? Is that common of of how things are done in parliamentary processes there? Uh, No, uh, it's not common at all. Uh, I think uh, only one vote of no confidence before this uh, had been successful in our 75 years history. So it's uh, very uncommon, in fact. Uh, But, you know, what's more common is that the military has been ruling Pakistan since, you know, half the time of its uh, inception. So 50% uh, of Pakistan's history has been under military rule. So I think that hasn't still ended because the military still exerts an overbearing, a dominating uh, role in uh, in Pakistan's uh, politics. So even in regards to this uh, vote of no confidence, you know, there's a very uh, smart politician. His name is Asif Ali Zadari. He's the former president of Pakistan and he's the husband of uh, Benazir Bhutto. In one interview before this vote of no confidence, a year before this vote of no confidence, he said to a senior journalist that without the establishment's support, such a vote of no confidence could never succeed. So according to the architects of this new uh, government, you know, it couldn't have been possible if certain hidden forces uh, weren't uh, with them. So I think that, you know, it can be uh, argued that uh, the new civilian government had the backing of Pakistan's uh, military establishment, which helped uh, it uh, make the new government. Now, what what about this? I know part of uh, Imran Khan's argument and why he was on, as it's called, the roadshow, was that he was angry that the parliamentary process is trying to exclude him from running again. Can you explain that to us? I mean, how does that work? How do you exclude somebody from being able to run for government? Well, it's a very interesting story, Manila. Uh, You know, Imran Khan, as prime minister, he received some gifts, uh, which were gifts to the state of Pakistan. Now, those gifts were uh, were, go to a place called the the Tosha Khana, which is like a state treasury uh, where they're held. But uh, the case in the election commission of Pakistan started that Imran Khan had taken those gifts. He had sold them in Dubai. Uh, There's some Rolex uh, watches, some graph watches worth millions of dollars. So we're talking big amounts. And even I've researched uh, on this case, and there are many uh, discrepancies in what uh, Imran Khan declared and, you know, what he actually took. So due to that case, the Election Commission of Pakistan uh, disqualified Imran Khan for holding office or to contest elections for five years. But that decision has been challenged in the Islamabad High Court. and. Uh, you know, legal analysts uh, feel that it the disqualification may not hold, but uh, you know that this case has not much to do with the opposition or or even the establishment because the election election commission of Pakistan is an independent uh, organization with a lot of power, and now uh, Imran Khan's party has frequently you know antagonized uh, the chief election commissioner. Uh, because they think that the uh, decision is unfair, but it can be appealed and it can ultimately go to the Supreme Court as well. So uh, the path uh, to Khan Saab's, uh, to Khan Saab making government is not yet fully blocked. Yeah, and it's a, it's similar, Manila. It's similar to, I guess they have something similar to our FEC, our Federal Elections Commission. <laughs> yes. So they, I think it was, it was said two weeks ago, 
Um, they ruled that he could no longer serve as a lawmaker until the next election. So just barring him at least temporarily for, for a few years. For the next election. But is it just me, Malik, or did you, when you heard Hamza's explanation of why they were trying to bar him, you know, <laughs> we just, you know, here, Hamza, we in Florida, we just had the raid on on President Donald Trump or ex-President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. And the FBI went in and raided, took out all this stuff and said part of it was that they claimed he took things from the Oval Office that he shouldn't have had, including some gifts, some documentation, some, you know, and and same thing, right? And they're trying to, there's theories that they're, you know, the U.S. government is trying to indict him and stop him from running in 2024. How comparable is the Trump situation with the Khan situation? And how about the comparison between those two political leaders? Because I couldn't help but make that comparison of, you know, two very popular populist leaders criticizing mm-hmm. the government, criticizing the establishment and the powers And they're that trying be. to stop him from running. Yes, they're, mean, they're trying to stop. They're trying to stop Trump from running. Yes. They just ruled that the um, that that Khan can't. Until right. the next election. So they're they're trying to stop Trump altogether. But good point. Good question. How comparable are these two? Well, yes, Manila, I think they're very comparable. And many analysts in Pakistan have written about it. Uh, they've called uh, Imran Khan Pakistan's Trump as well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, both these uh, gentlemen are outsiders. They're outsiders in politics who made their way in their big celebrities, both of them are playboys. Uh, they, their relationships have been uh, all over the news. And they're very popular. They're, they're fans. They're diehard fans. They can do anything for them. Uh, you know, it's sometimes in, in Pakistani political commentary, uh, we say that, you know, Im- Imran Khan's uh, party is something like a cult. And his followers don't listen to uh, rationality or reason or logic. And the same things are said about uh, former President Donald Trump. So there are uh, comparisons uh, to be made, but there's a huge difference uh, uh, between uh, these two individuals, Manila. And that is that Imran Khan is actually not a very wealthy man, uh, even though he lives in a, a huge uh, a mansion, which is worth, uh, let's say, 20 to $30 million, which was uh, gifted to him by his wife, uh, Jemima Goldsmith, who was the daughter of a very wealthy uh, Englishman. But Imran Khan himself, he does not have uh, uh, any family wealth or a lot of money or business to uh, fall back to. So he's either he has philanthropy, he has his cancer hospitals or his university. And, uh, you know, he can't make money out of that. And then he has uh, his, his political party, his politics. So I think this is a distinction uh, which needs to be made between the two that uh, Trump is known for his wealth. You know, Trump Tower, uh, all, so many businesses which carry Trump's name. But uh, that's not the case with Imran Khan. Hamza, wasn't he, I mean, he was, you know, from my understanding, I'm not a, a fan of cricket. I'm not a cricketer. I don't know anything about the sport. But, you know, I've heard them say he's like the Michael Jordan of cricket, right? Like he's the biggest cricketing star there was. Did he not make a lot of money from being a sports athlete? Well, yes, uh, he did. He bought a flat uh, in London. I believe it was a two-bedroom flat. And he sold it. For, I believe, if I'm not, I may be wrong with the figure, but approximately 700,000 pounds. And then he invested that money uh, in order to buy this huge uh, mansion. And he also got some help uh, from his uh, former wife, uh, Jemima Goldsmith. But yes, he did uh, make some money, but uh, I think it wasn't enough to build uh, a significant wealth 
which is you know anything comparable to what Trump has or anything comparable to other Pakistani politicians. You know, you will see very minor uh, Pakistani politicians names you wouldn't even know. But they they have a lot of wealth. They have generational wealth. Uh, they have a lot of lands which are worth tens or even hundreds of uh, millions of dollars. Uh, but Imran Khan has nothing like this. You know, in Lahore, uh, his home in uh, Zaman Park, which is his uh, family home, which was his father's home, it is just like you know maybe an upper middle class or you know n- not that luxurious or it doesn't reflect uh, significant wealth or or. or anything like that is is this why he's very popular with like i would say the working class of pakistan yes this is definitely a reason and also because of uh, the corruption allegations on other leaders now imran also has uh, corruption allegations but if you compare the other leaders so the bhutto family or the sharif family now they have properties all over the world and they have a lot of wealth now mian nawashri's father was a steel baron he owned a steel mill he had thousands of employees so he was a wealthy man when he started politics but you know for the people of pakistan those families aren't relatable they don't have similar experiences uh, as uh, the common pakistani but imran khan knows uh, the struggles uh, of a common pakistani much better than uh, those uh, leaders which have been born with a silver spoon uh, in their mouths So I think this is one of the reasons why many people relate with Imran Khan and support Imran Khan. Hey Hamza, just a quick question. Um we have a couple of minutes on left. What well, the, the the actual march from Lahore, you mentioned Lahore to Islamabad. Can you give us a sense of just how large this convoy was? Because we don't have really have a sense of how large it was. Well, I was there at the first day of the march when it started from Lahore. In fact, I was just a few feet away from uh, Imran Khan's container. and i was reporting from there so when it started it was around 5 to 7000 people which is not a lot uh, considering that uh, lahore is a city of over 10 million people so it was just a few thousand and uh, then you know when it made its way uh, outside lahore towards gujranwala then the crowd started thinning, thinning again but when imran khan made the speeches or when he was about to make speeches then you know passers by onlookers other people in the traffic they also stopped and just for a few moments and saw and heard uh, imran khan because he's he's still popular you know even if people who are not part of the march but they're in the vicinity uh, they also you know just go there for a few minutes and come uh, but to be honest like i was there i'm an eyewitness and the numbers uh, in the march weren't uh, very impressive but another reason for this is that the the political party pti they had not made any arrangements uh, you know for their supporters there was there was no food for them uh, there was no water uh, there was no place to camp or to uh, or you know just to rest uh, most people were walking uh, there were some transport arrangements but uh, to be honest like it wasn't a march which could shake any government yeah this story is just fascinating to me because you know as as the years progress Pakistan is becoming quite the vital global player and you know it, it started out with something negative right with Osama bin Laden people started paying attention but then comes Imran Khan and people are learning how what a you know a complex civil society there is in Pakistan it's becoming quite the world player um and it's i think i can't think of anybody better to to explain to us what's happening out there uh my friend Hamza Azhar Salam Uh, thank you so much for coming in to tell us 
eyewitness stuff that you're seeing there. Hamza Azar Salam is the, a Pakistani journalist. He is the founder and editor at the Pakistan Daily and former reporter for Pakistan's The News International. My friend, thank you so much. Thank you, Manila, for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Always enjoy talking to that guy. He's a wealth of knowledge, very fair. Yeah. Very, very fair, which we don't have here with the journalists no, usually in the mainstream. Not at all. I, I was actually reading just, you know, as he was talking, I was reading about, but gee, you're talking about like within, so within 24 hours, he's going to be, be out there. Like, wow. Like you are committed, bro. You're tough, tough, what they say, a tough, not a tough cookie. I can't tough think of cookie. A, I don't know. Yeah, is that what it's it is? It's tough cookie. Why? I mean, there's tough other things, which I probably can't say because I think it's on a list. but. But yeah. yeah, I mean, but good for him, though. Good Absolutely for Imran good Khan. For him. Whether, like him or hate him, doesn't matter. The fact that he's a 70-year-old man, he's like Tupac, got shot multiple times, getting yep. back up, or 50 Cent. 50. Because yeah, ultimately, you're right. Tupac, 50. Tupac did die. Right. <laughs> uh, but 50, got shot got multiple right. times. Right? All right. We're, we're going to leave that there. Oh, apparently, Lath is saying five times? 50 got shot five times? Holy moly. All right. All right. You have been listening to Fault Lines here on Radio Sputnik 10 times. 10 shot. <laughs> he was shot a lot. A lot of times. All right. <laughs> we'll be right back. Fault Lines, Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Happy Friday. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on your radio dial. I am the Durac conservative, the ultra-atomic MAGA, MAGA, MAGA king conservative, Malik Abdul, in studio with the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. You so did I get the pause, pause right? Did you got I get the pregnant pause? That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get the pregnant pause right. And now that we know, thanks to our intrepid produ- producer, I mean, let's the, clarify the shootings here. Yes, Fitty is nine, nine times. Nine times. Tupac, Pac, five, five times. And now you got Imran Khan three times. That man is a soldier, as they say, no Jeez. limits. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, man. Yeah, Seven, but, but he's 70. Let me just add that. 70 years old. Let me just add that. Yeah. Pac and Fiddy were young when this happened. Mm-hmm. So I get how you fight. I don't know how you get through nine bullets. Right. But, but in any case, this is a 70-year-old man. Yeah. Good for him Good for, for him. coming within 24 hours, seems God like. Hansa said within 15 to 20 minutes, he was going yeah, to be giving a speech. He's so. talk soon, any, any minute now, I guess. Yep, but let's get to some U.S. news and domestic news. Former U.S. President Donald Trump said on Thursday that he will very, very, very probably <laughs> participate in the 2024 presidential race in the United States and will unveil his plan very soon. I ran twice, I won twice, and did much better the second time, 
than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016. And likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Said Trump at a rally in Iowa, adding, get ready. That's all I'm telling you very soon. Get ready. It sounds like Donald Trump is the, the um, drum major for Jackson State University's Tigers, whose theme was the temptations. Get ready. Oh. Because here I come. Oh, I see. I see. I see. And let me just say how there are a lot of reasons to cringe when Donald Trump speaks. Mm-hmm. But... As grammatical errors go, it he's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is Donald Trump. And oh. more domestic news, Canadian senators David DePape, who attacked the husband of U.S. Speaker House, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at the couple's home in San Francisco, was in the United States illegally, a U.S. media outlet reported on Thursday citing the Department of Homeland Security. According to a statement from the U.S. from DHS, DePape will be deported from the country after his criminal cases are resolved. I believe DePape is from Canada. Can't remember where, but he's from Canada. Quoting U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is ICE, lodged an immigration detainer on Canadian, yep, Canadian National David DePape with San Francisco County Jail on November 1st following his October 28th arrest. More than half of Americans, 56%, believe that a third major party is needed in the U.S. amid dissatisfaction with how the current political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, are reflecting their interests. A new survey has revealed that 61% of U.S. adults find the Republican Party's work unfavorable while 57% were similarly inclined to disapprove of the Democratic Party's job performance, according to a Gallup poll. Also, in an impressive rise from a survey in 1994 that showed 6% of Americans having an unfavorable view of both major parties, this time the figure stood at over a quarter. A whole quarter. 24% of Americans. That's a lot. Yeah. And also, the political polarization plaguing America has been seen by analysts as resulting from the two-party system in the country, with some experts questioning whether the U.S. was a democracy anymore. Yes, many people complain about the two-party system. The problem here in America is that not many people do anything about it. And in international news, the United Nations General Assembly voted on Thursday to condemn the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which has been in place since shortly after a socialist revolution swept the U.S.-backed government out of power in 1959. In the vote, 185 nations came out against U.S. policy. The only two countries to vote against the resolution were maybe not too surprisingly, the United States, but also Israel. Two nations also abstained from the vote, 
Ukraine, where a U.S.-backed nationalist government has held power since a coup in 2014, and Brazil, where the anti-communist government of Jair Bolsonaro has two months left in power. In more international news, China is confident that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing will strengthen mutual understanding and trust between the countries and help deepen cooperation in various areas, Chinese President Xi Jinping said on Friday. Xi met with Schultz earlier on Friday in the Great Hall of the People in the Chinese capital city of Beijing, quoting, You are the first European leader to visit China after, t- after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China, and it is also your fourth visit to China after you assume the post. I am confident that the visit will strengthen mutual understanding and trust of the two countries, deepen practical cooperation in different areas, and outline plans for the further development of China-German relations. She told the meetings with Schultz, he told the meeting with Schultz, as quoted by China Central Television. The Chinese leader also added that China and Germany must work together in the unstable international environment and chaos. Moving on, the member nations of the Group of Seven, the G7, nations in Australia have agreed to set a fixed instead of a floating price for Russian oil upon concluding the price cap deal later in November while the initial price has not been set. This is according to U.S. media, quoting, The coalition has agreed the price cap will be a fixed price that will be reviewed regularly rather than a discount to an index. This will increase market stability and simplify compliance to minimize the burden on market participants. While the initial price has not been set, it is expected to be to be agreed upon in coming weeks, the report said, citing multiple sources, and that cap is actually set to begin on December 5th. Moving over to France, French President Emmanuel Macron's approval rating dropped to its lowest in November, a study conducted by the ELAB, ELAB showed on Friday. According to the poll, Macron's approval rating was 32 in November after falling six points in the previous two months. This is the lowest level since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. The CEO, Bernard Sananez said, and on this day in history, 1879 of African-American inventor Thomas Elkins patents the refrigerating apparatus. And in 1922, Howard Carter discovers the intact tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun in Egypt. And in 2008, Barack Obama becomes the first African-American to be elected president of the United States, defeating Republican candidate John McCain. These are your headlines for Friday, November 4th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Now, before we get to our other guests, we're going to just do a, just do a little dabbing around here. Going back to the domestic news that we were talking about, can I just say something about Donald Trump? Yes, Donald Trump ran twice. Donald Trump did not win twice. He won once, 
but he is correct to say that he is, he did get the most votes out of any incumbent president in American history. So he's actually absolutely right about that part. He's not a right, not right about winning twice. Now, if Donald Trump is able to believe this, and if people are able to believe that Donald Trump got those 74 million votes, then maybe Donald Trump and Trump world and many other people out there can believe that, yes, Joe Biden actually did get 84 million votes. He did get the most votes out of any president in U.S. history, in any presidential nominee in U.S. history. He's absolutely right about that. But that doesn't mean that there was anything shenanigans as far as like voter voter fraud. And yeah, and I know that's another thing going on in the election now. We're talking about the absentee ballots in Pennsylvania. And let's be clear about those absentee ballots. I'm one of those. I have no problem with absentee ballots. Donald Trump votes by absentee ballots. I don't think that the Republicans are doing themselves any favors by continuing to push for um, absentee ballots. But as we're seeing in places, I know definitely in Georgia, and possibly in other places around the country, the early vote numbers for Republicans are looking pretty good. And what does that look like? Early vote numbers. Early vote numbers. It includes absentee ballots, meaning those that not only received an absentee ballot and mailed it in. No, that also means those who dropped it in those ballot boxes that Republicans and conservatives are complaining about. It includes the early vote, the in-person early vote. All of those things are happening now, and we're looking at a place like Georgia. Republicans are doing pretty good. Definitely, Brian Kemp is doing very good in the early vote, and he did that as well in the um, primary. So things are looking up, and can't really complain about it, but we're going to have some more midterm talks. I'm sure we're going to get into that today. We're going to talk about it on Monday. We're going to talk about it on Tuesday. And then when we come in on Wednesday, if, well, we'll give an update. I can't say that we'll have the actual results because as we know, Absent certain ballots, I believe the absentee ballots can't be counted on in certain places until the day of the actual um, election itself. So could be possible that we wake up Wednesday morning and not know who won in some of these places. So we'll see. And, you know, you know, what bothers me about this being a federal election is that there is a patchwork quilt across this country of how the votes are counted. So, like, I believe in Pennsylvania, they count what the early... (laughs) They call it early voting, but I think they count it last, Mm -hmm. right, in Pennsylvania, which is one of those contested states that Donald Trump brought up. Right. They count the ballot box, the actual, you you go into the voting center, right, and they Mm -hmm. count those votes first. And And then the the mail-in. Yes, and the mail-ins and all that stuff. That's exactly what happened. And that's, right, and that's what I, that's one of my personal gripes Mm -hmm. is we don't actually count every vote. It should be absolute. Now, on this matter, and this is where I think both sides can come to an agreement if they at least try. They can actually 
figure this thing out because it shouldn't be. Remember what was happening? Um, Georgia was another place. On George, in Georgia in 2020 on election night, they stopped counting ballots and they had to come back the next day to finish counting the ballots. And Georgia ended up being one of those states where we didn't know for a couple of weeks what the final numbers were. So there does need to be some absolute consistency with laws like that around the country. It's no reason that Georgia, that we should have to wait several days because different states have different requirements on when. No, why can't you start counting those absentee ballots before? Ahead of time. Election day. Because you've got them already. So are they just sitting there in a, I don't know, let's presume best case scenario, it's in a locked safe somewhere. Right. And in an absentee ballot case, is different than a voting machine where there's a kiosk and all of this stuff is digital. No, you you have to open it to see what the, who the person voted for and then enter it into a system. So you can actually well, start it do, doing that early on. See, that's just so clunky. Yeah. It's so clunky the way we we tally these votes. And again, not every vote is actually counted. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. that, that I know that. That bugs me. That really, really bugs me. And in some places, if you don't get it in, some places it's the day after, the like a certain time after the election. So like a day after the election, if the absentee ballot isn't received by or postmarked by by election day itself. Right. So that's how it was in D.C. It had to be postmarked by the election day itself. But I don't know if it were ever counted. Right. Because I actually didn't drop it. I didn't drop it in until Election Day itself, so I feel bad about it. <laughs> but I didn't do that, and um, so I don't know if it was it were counted or not. Right. Which is why, and here I am, I'm feeding into the conservative conspiracy, but this is why I then ended up going in person to vote. Yeah. So I did the absentee ballot, but I wasn't sure if it were received, but I also went in person. Because so my mind was post- potential that there was double vote, yes, Malik. There is a potential that I voted twice. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say probably not because of the oh, absentee. No. So no. So I think only your in person probably actually was yeah they cancel right yeah they cancel one of those out. So so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna stop that right there and head. We're gonna flip gears, switch gears to international relations talks and Mark uh, a lot of uh. UK talk, let's just say. I don't know who America's closest ally is, if it's the UK or Israel. But in this case, we're going to talk about the UK with our friend Mark Sloboda on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. Mark Sloboda is on deck. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. We are bringing in Mark Sloboda. He is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at MarkSloboda1, the number one. And check out his new YouTube channel at The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. And also find him on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-I. S-C-I, Gramsci. Mark Sloboda, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Morning, Mark. Manila, Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. Let's start with uh, 
America's oldest ally, I'll say, the UK. There's a lot of stuff coming up about that. <laughs> it's Fun Friday. Technically, the U.S. was allied with France against the United Kingdom. Okay, first, yes, true. Yeah, you're right, okay. you're right. As soon as I said that, I went, actually, no, I think France is the oldest ally. Uh, but the U.K., the U.K., the ardent, ardent ally since World War II, at least, an ardent ally. Um, obviously, Liz Truss is gone, right? But left in her very short, in the wake of her very short tenure, there was a lot of stuff that's starting to bubble to the surface. And that is a Nord Stream joke, uh, like the text message of it is done. Give us an analysis of overall, what are all the things that are being tied to Liz Truss over the last 50 days that is now coming to the surface? The, The issue with the Black Sea fleet, the Nord Stream pipelines, all under the Liz Truss watch. Yeah, um, so a lot of things are definitely being tied to the British government and its involvement in Ukraine, although I'm fairly certain that a lot of it predates Liz Truss. Some of it was simply uh, obviously exposed during her brief tenure, uh, and even before that, back to when she was foreign secretary uh, because of the hacking of her cell phone, her her, her mobile phone, where reportedly, uh, ac- according to uh, at least Kim.com, uh, from a uh, cloud hacking outfit that Liz Truss tweeted to Anthony Blinken just moments after the Nord Stream explosions, it is done, Um, seeming to signal uh, that both the United Kingdom and the United States were involved in this plot to blow up the Russian German pipelines uh, running under the uh, Black Sea. But uh, even more so, there have been attacks in Crimea. Uh, First, there was the uh, suicide truck bombing uh, that damaged at least uh, one lane of the Crimean, of the Kerch Bridge to Crimea. Um, And then even more recently, just last Saturday, as a matter of fact, there was a rather large, uh, it's been described as massive, uh, drone attack early in the morning on Sevastopol Bay, uh, on the Black Sea fleet there in Crimea. Um, And this involved some nine aerial and seven naval drones. And uh, actually, footage uh, from one of these naval drones was uh, uh, released, evidently, uh, by uh, Ukraine, showing uh, at least one phase of the attack. The attack was unsuccessful, largely uh, resulting in only minor damage to one minesweeper, uh, the Ivan Golobets. Um, but right away, the Russian Ministry of Defense, within hours, announced that uh, the United Kingdom was uh, behind not just the planning, but the directing uh, of this uh, essentially proxy force attack uh, on the Russian Navy uh, in harbor uh, in Sevastopol. Um, And also that the very same British uh, naval unit that was involved in this attack was also the one that was involved in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipeline explosions. 
the British ambassador to Russia was summoned uh, to the Russian foreign ministry to to answer uh, for this yesterday. Um, and it has been revealed that evidence has been presented and uh, it will be made public soon showing the UK's hand uh, behind both of these attacks. Um, and also, just in the last 24 uh, hours, the Grey Zone uh, has got their hands on a number of leaked documents uh, showing British spies constructing secret terror army in Ukraine. Uh, that, uh, again, specifically uh, to the Crimea, a covert to organize and train a covert uh, cell of saboteurs with uh, instructions to attack Russian targets in Crimea. And that's an excellent piece and a, uh, a real um, you know, feather in the cap of the gray zone to get a hold of these documents, which they have made available on their website. I can't, I'm not sure who is leading who in, in this proxy war in Ukraine, Mark. I mean, is, is, is it the UK acting on the behest of the US? Or is the U.S. supporting the U.K.'s mission against Russia as Ukraine is the theater? I mean, how how would you place the leader of, you know, these bad ideas? Yeah. So, um, I I mean, generally, of course, the U.S. has has the heft in all of these things. It is providing the majority of of the funding, the military support uh, to the Kiev regime. Um, there was during the drone attack uh, on Crimea uh, last week, there was a U.S. Global Hawk uh, surveillance drone, which was capable of directing the entire thing from the Black Sea. I don't know if you've ever seen a Global Hawk, but those things are huge, right? Those are those are a massive, technically accomplished uh, uh, spy drone uh, capable of, of, of a lot of direction. They were it was circling above the Black Sea, uh, just outside of Russian waters during the attack. But I would say that this is quite often a case, however, of the tail wagging the dog. The The UK definitely seems to have a really almost ideologic, fervent anti-Russian stance. This goes back to the days of Jonathan Steele, the British spy uh, who was involved in the manufacture of this dodgy dossier to uh, falsely try to associate Donald Trump election uh, with the Russian government, the, the whole uh, false Russiagate scandal. Um, and he was quite fond at the time of saying, and he said it loudly and often, that the UK is at war with Russia. And that was already years ago now. And it appears that that is continuing. And uh, some of these leaked documents show to a uh, belief that the uh, figures in the British government were worried about the Biden administration's commitment to uh, complete war on Russia and were uh, trying to firm up uh, that you know, level uh, of support uh, from the Biden administration as well. So uh, the United Kingdom, again, may be the tail 
often at least wagging the larger U.S. dog uh, in this uh, proxy war, which has essentially become a direct war at this point. Hey, Mark, uh, just a question for you. Uh, Speaking of, like, Kherson, can you give us an update on what's happening there? I was doing some reading on it, and it seems as if there's uh, two two thoughts, uh, that there's, on the one hand, uh, Russia's presence in the region is decreasing, but there are also reports that Russia has deployed about 40,000 or so soldiers to the western bank of the, if I'm saying it right, the Dnipro, Dnipro, yeah, the Dnipro River. Yeah, well, well, what's what's happening there? Okay, so Kherson city spans, that's the, you know, the, the capital there, that's uh, of the Kherson region, that straddles both sides of the Dnipro River. Uh, basically, the Kiev regime gathered a rather large offensive force to the north there, uh, some reportedly some 60,000 troops. And it was uh, about six weeks ago that the Russia tactically withdrew from some of their positions in the northern Kherson region, fell back. Uh, over what it, to shorten their defensive lines while they were waiting for the Russian mobilization forces from calling up its reserves uh, to come in. Um, and basically since then, for the last three weeks, the Kiev regime's offensive has made no ground there, right? They've been held and uh, at every turn and suffered uh, large uh, casualties as a result of of what is basically suicide charging across open steppe in the face of superior Russian artillery, missile systems, and aviation, and which has long been the story there. But at the same time, the local Russian government in Kherson announced that they were evacuating the city. Uh, and by that, they mean the civilian population, because they were preparing for a possible eventual urban defense of the city itself if the Kiev regime uh, ever manages to push past those defensive lines, which they haven't done so far. Uh, That was uh, uh, certainly from the right bank of the Dnieper, uh, but uh, even beyond that, and, and a lot of people were offered apartments all across Russia, wherever they wanted, actually, uh, as a result of that. But a very large number of people, uh, over uh, 100,000, up to 200,000, were evacuated. Um, And this is actually the responsible thing to do if you're planning to defend an urban area. Um, What the Kiev regime did not do in Mariupol and other places, basically everywhere, as Amnesty International detailed, they turned every school, hospital, residential building into a firing point, but did not evacuate the citizens, effectively using them as human shields, which is, of course, a war crime. So Russia was doing the responsible thing here. Um, and uh, since the mobilization was, uh, the calling up of the Russian reservists was announced, and the Russian strike campaign to cripple the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure, which inhibits their military logistics as the trains are the primary way to move equipment, artillery, fuel, gear uh, around the country. That's their, their primary tool, and it runs on electricity. So a combination of those two factors, Russian reservists starting to move into the theater, uh, and the, the Russian military num- numbers are actually ha- have been and still are increasing. They're just moving civilians out. 
disruption to the Kiev regime's logistics um, ha- is what has resulted in this completely stalled uh, Kiev offensive for about the last three weeks now. And what appears to be happening, and, and the U- Ukrainian media is openly discussing this, is that Russia is trying to make it look like their military is preparing to withdraw, while at the same time moving military forces in uh, as a trap. They want the Kiev regime to go on the offensive uh, because the offender, uh, you know, the one going on the offensive across open territory here is the one putting their troops at serious risk uh, of, um, you know, uh, real heavy casualties. Again, this is flat, open, step terrain. Um, and uh, even further, the Russian flag was removed from basically uh, one of the uh, city hall administrative buildings in Kherson yesterday, and the Kiev regime is openly saying, "Uh, uh-uh, it's a trap! It's a trap!" <laughs> uh, that that this was all staged, um, uh, uh, and that the uh, local Kherson um, uh, city. Of- official was making statements that the Russian military could withdraw from one side of Harrison City. And again, this all seems to be part of, an, of a rather orchestrated method to, to coax, to lure, to bait the Kiev military into you know, this long ballyhooed big attempt to take Harrison City, which just hasn't happened. Right now, it's it's more than anything, just a, another artillery slug across big open fields than anything else. Mark, specific to the UK right now, I'm going to read some of this report from the AFP. Uh, the headline here says, Russia warns UK of dangerous consequences after Black Sea attack. So basically, I'm going to paraphrase this part, is that, that Moscow, uh, the Kremlin summoned the UK ambassador um, to the foreign foreign ministry office and warned London of these dangerous consequences. And here's a quote from the foreign ministry in a, an official statement. Such confrontational actions of the English carry a threat of escalation of the situation and could lead to unpredictable and dangerous consequences. Now, uh, Deborah Braunert, the UK ambassador to Russia, she had to walk through, pro- there were, counter-protesters to her, to her appearance there. Uh, She had to kind of walk through a line of protesters. And apparently, apparently the foreign ministry had delivered concrete facts, what they're saying, concrete facts of London's hostile provocations to her and asked her to strongly, they suggest that she go back to her government and strongly tell them that they need to pull back from their hostilities. Translate this diplomatic language for us, Mark. What is this looking like? Forecast this for us. Yeah, so, I mean, this concrete evidence they're talking about is probably tied to British foreign ministry warning that their communications with the U.S. had been compromised a couple uh, as much as a couple of months ago. And this is tied in, although uh, probably not solely restricted to the tapping of of, uh, Liz Truce's phone. And basically what 
the uh, Russian uh, foreign ministry is telling the UK is, we know you're behind this. We have all the evidence. We consider this a direct act of war against us. If you continue in this, we will strike back and then we're at World War Three. Oh, God. That's that's what the, that's that's the, the behind the diplomatic language. Right. The translation of strong consequences. I mean, this this is frightening to hear. I mean, I, I figured that's what, you know, the diplomatic language translated to. But how I mean. Can we really be there, Mark? I don't I don't really have words for this. I mean, can we be at the doorstep of World War Three? Oh, absolutely. I mean, did you catch the report from The Washington Post that there are now not just CIA and special forces and European commandos on the ground in Ukraine, yes. which have been there? We've known that from, again, The Washington Post and The New York Times for months now. But now there are uniformed U.S. military troops in Ukraine. Of course, they're just there to inspect (laughs) weapon cages that the U.S. has. Right. And, and, you know, anyone old enough to uh, to remember or even have heard of Vietnam uh, knows exactly what's going on there uh, and and the mission creep. But, yeah, we're 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 right there. We are right there on the precipice to World War Three. If that does happen. And this is supposed to be a fun Friday talk, by the way, Mark. <laughs> this is this is my idea of a fun Friday oh talk. Oh my god, Manila. Oh my <laughs> they god. Don't, they don't. They don't. They don't nickname me Mark Cassandra Sloboda for anything. <laughs> so okay, let's let's entertain this horrible idea of World War Three. One, does it escalate to nuclear war? And two, who who sides with who and where? Okay, so first of all, of course, if it escalates to nuclear, then it doesn't matter. The yeah, the Russia and the United States have enough nuclear arsenals between the two of them to not only annihilate each other, but annihilate each other's total blocks and 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 the rest of the world several times over, right? So you don't once it, if it if it went to the nuclear level, you don't really have to worry about who's on whose sides anymore because everyone's dead. I mean, even in New Zealand and Middle Earth down there, you're not going to survive. <laughs> Sorry, it's not going to happen. Right? Lord of the Rings reference. That's where it was yeah, filmed, uh, folks. That's yeah, what yeah, Mark yeah, means. Yeah, not, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure I do. Sure I do. <laughs> Mark! <laughs> I, I am reporting from Mordor, according to the Western <laughs> mainstream media, right? I mean... <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, um, of course, uh, we we hope. I mean, we are right now at at the point where there is what is essentially direct conflict. When we are at the boundary between proxy war and direct conflict, the hundred and first airborne division is right in Romania on the Ukrainian border, reporting to CBS that they're ready to go in tonight. And that they are not there on a peacetime deployment. They're there on a combat mission. If U.S. troops get sent into Ukraine, that, that, that again, uh, you know, uh, under arms, that that is a direct conflict. How quickly could things escalate to the nuclear level? I mean, it's that's really uh, not hard. Uh, that's really hard to, you know, to uh, prognosticate. Um, uh, it's not immediately clear. The U.S. and Russia successfully, so far, more or less, deconflicted 
in Syria for the last seven years. I mean, there's a U.S. invasion and occupation force on, on one side of the Tigris and Syria and the Russian government on the other. And they've managed to to basically co-inhabit Syria uh, without us being, in, you know, uh, going nuclear uh, for you know, seven years now. But in this case, it would be in more direct conflict. Uh, and and we may already be there. I mean, I, the, the United Kingdom pretty obviously is is planning and, and directing attacks at this point. Uh, the Russian also made accusations that the naval uh, drones, uh, which were uh, used in the attack, were also specifically uh, uh, given for the attack uh, to the Kiev regime. And the, the British government openly announced a couple of months ago that they were providing naval drones to Ukraine. So there doesn't really seem to be much uh, doubt about that. Um, I don't think anyone even in the West believes their denials. It's just denial is is the fig leaf of policy uh, between direct war, between proxy war and direct war at this point. And that fig leaf is wearing really, really thin. Hey, Mark, uh, just I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I was uh, doing some reading and and it was an article. It was written by a guy out of Prague, a, a, a journalist, I believe, out of Prague. And he was talking about Eastern Europe's essentially what he described as each Eastern Europe's culture war on Ukraine. And he was describing how there seems to be um, some elitism or uh, elite stereo, st- the elite stereotyping those who were against the war, um, the, the describing them in very negative terms. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I, I didn't think about it until it, it, reading this article, it reminded me how the divide here in the United States is and I don't know if we can call them elites or we can call them neocons versus everyone else. And obviously, this is after the progressives here wrote the letter. Um, they, they put out the letter. Then they took the letter they back. They rescinded it. Then they rescinded that letter that was urging peace. But are you seeing do you are you seeing some type of elite divide where the elites are pro um, you cur- yeah, well, pro role in pro Ukraine, yeah. while the people out in the streets. And just the other day, October 30th, there was an anti-war protest, and I think that was Prague on October 30th. So you're seeing these protests in the streets from like the people. Allow me to add to this whole elite thing, right? So when Elon Musk took over Twitter, um, obviously everybody weighed in, including Mrs. Zelensky or Zelis- Zelenskaya as she she goes by the feminization of the name. Um, so Mrs., the first lady of Ukraine, she, she claps back to Elon Musk, you know, basically calling for peace, right? Elon Musk called for peace before the, the, the deal was closed. She clapped back, I think it was yesterday or the day before in, while she was giving a speech somewhere and basically condemned Elon Musk for daring to call for peace on Twitter like, wh- huh? The first lady of Ukraine. The Vogue cover girl. The yes, Vogue the cover Vogue, girl. Yes, the Vogue cover Take girl. Take back your cry for peace. Yes. What does that even mean? Can you imagine Jackie O going, I love the war in, in, in Vietnam. Let's continue. I'm going to uh, object on several 
grounds to comparing uh, <laughs> Zelenskaya to Jackie O. Um, fair enough. I fair mean, enough. Uh, even even just on a fashion sense, fair one enough. Jackie O marries or much less on a moral or political level. Right. I mean, I mean but anyway, so. I don't think that there's so much a elite, you know, popular divide on this. Let's just say that the elite is more pro-war, right? But, I mean, if you take a look at the polling, uh, on the general polling, certainly in the U.S. and also in most of Europe, too, although there are some holdouts, um, that the majority supports continued uh, military support for the Kiev regime in in Ukraine. Uh, and and in, in the U.S., those numbers are, are around the high 60s to 70 percent, depending on the week. They're, they're also holding true across most of Europe, although Certainly, there is at least a minority protesting there, although a lot of that is due to the energy prices and the inflation that the people there are are already suffering, that which is much worse than in the United States. So that that is more of an incentive to go out and be opposed to it. Uh, but there are a few countries. Uh, France, the majority is actually against supplying uh, arms to Ukraine and and certainly Hungary with Viktor Orban in charge, uh, but uh, not only him, but, you know, the, the popular sentiment there, according to the polls is uh, we want nothing to do with this. You know, <laughs> we, we you know, we, we're, we're, we're out of this. We want nothing to do with this. Um, so, you know, there there are a few isolated examples, but generally it's more a matter of the people uh, are have essentially been propagandized into supporting the Kiev regime, you know, complete with its state armed and funded neo-Nazi battalions by the score. Um, but the elites are m more so. To, to, that, uh, to that end, because they are the elites, they do obviously get our attention. They get the mainstream media attention. And then the mainstream media splatters them all over magazines, their thoughts, their comments, splatters them all over headlines everywhere on the nightly news. Does that impact at all what the public is seeing? Because like you said, the French don't seem to support continuing uh, support of Ukraine. I, I don't the, know. The French public. Yeah, the French public. The, exactly. And, and here in the U.S., I kind of feel like the, the public support of this continued um, supplying of weapons, more money. I think that's waning here stateside. I, I don't know if it's waning. There might be a slight ebb, right? A slight, a slight ebb, but I, I don't know if that is indicative of a larger movement. I mean, I'm not talking about the Sputnik audience because they're a little a head and shoulders, a little little intelligence above the the, the average sheeple guys out there. I, I'm sure you understand that. Uh, but um, we'll, we'll say there's a slight ebb. There's a few voices have timidly been raised in protest and been slapped down. Right. I mean, and I'm talking about the tail between the legs of the progressive caucus in, in Congress with Nancy Pelosi in full dominatrix gear, <laughs> cracking the whip. <laughs> you know, get back in line. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, what I, I, I can say is that, you know, the more the longer this goes on and the the backlash of the really stupid 
uh, economic war of sanctions with uh, all of the uh, spiraling energy prices and the inflation that that results in kind from that, um, it, I, there will be a growing amount of protest. But let's I mean, when the U.S. went to war in Iraq, there were millions of people out protesting against the war and the elites didn't bat an eye. And there was broad bipartisan support then. And largely, there is broad, centrist, bipartisan support in the United States now as well. Um, and we've seen already a couple governments fall in Europe, but they were quickly replaced by, uh, you know, almost seeming through with sleight of hand to bring in right-wing populist governments that support NATO and that support the war on Ukraine in both Italy and Sweden. And, uh, you know, that will be the the attempt. There, there generally is broad bipartisan support of the center-right and center-left parties throughout the U.S. Uh, and Europe for this. There are some cracks starting to show, but it's a long way from the edifice collapsing. I, I, I think... The nukes would fly before that. If that's the only condition in which that edifice would completely collapse. Sorry, I, I don't see it. I don't see it yet. I don't see I If I see it, I will tell you. I don't see it yet. This is, for me, the scariest Fun Friday talk I've ever had on this station. Uh, but the, I think the worst part about all of this, you know, this last part of the conversation is that, yes, while there are a growing number of people who are aware of what's actually happening there, how we got there, and how we're now at the doorstep of World War III and possibly nuclear annihilation, mutual nuclear annihilation. Do you think most Americans just, as much as we we understand the idea, the concept of war, here in America, war hasn't really reached our doorstep, right? Since Pearl Harbor, I would say. It, it's never reached us directly. We haven't seen war on our our soil since Pearl Harbor. Not only have you not seen war, but you haven't even seen massive economic, you know, a, there hasn't been a serious economic downturn associated with a conflict since the 1970s. Right. So I, I think we're we're at least one, two, if not three generations removed from the real consequences of, of the fallout of what war actually looks like. And and. And do you think that's part of the problem is that because in the 20th century, through U.S. hegemony, especially in the way of technological warfare, we always exported war to over there. XYZ country. It's always war is over there. It's never here. We've got to fight them over there so that we don't have to fight them here. This uh, old red dot canard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think this is something that Americans just can't wrap their brains around that that why are we not there protesting? Why aren't we protesting in front of the White House? Why don't they get that this could literally bring the end of the world? Yeah. Fourth of all, don't don't underestimate the power of the fourth estate here as an ideological and and political actor driving the people here. Right. The media, the media is is not some neutral objective player here. Right. They are a complete proponent of 
the war. They have been since this conflict started back in 2014, as the Ukrainian chief general just admitted to uh, in the past few days, Zeluzhny. He said, we've been, you know, this conflict has been going on for eight years now, eight and a half years now. And, and he's absolutely correct. And the media has been a big driver in a feedback circle with this, uh, you know, bipartisan neocon uh, elite on both sides of, of the aisle driving this war. But yeah, I mean, you're starting to see some economic suffering and some a, a rise in objection, you know, even if it's not anywhere near a majority level in the most of Europe. If Americans started to suffer, right, you, you even if the prices at the pump will go up significantly again, then you you might see a few voices raised uh, in objection. But I mean, that is the nature of a proxy war. You get someone else to do the dying, right? And you know what? It, it, future generations get to pay for all these arms because, of course, it's all being bought on top of thirty trillion dollars of debt as well. Being bought so, on a credit card. Um, yeah, there's even even the economic costs are being outsourced to future generations. Yeah, you know what? The interesting thing, you brought up the protests during the Iraq war and the name that comes to mind, uh, what was her name? Cindy Sheehan. Remember Cindy Sheehan? Yeah, she's still, she's Cindy Sheehan still out there. Is she? Oh, wow. Well, you know, so Cindy Sheehan was a huge critic of the war. She was really, I think, it, the pink something. For some reason, I mean, something. I don't of, remember this name. Yeah, they were, it was pink. They they wore pink. I can't even think of why they wore pink. Code but, pink. Code yeah, pink. code pink. That's what it was. Code pink. Yeah, they're, they're still out there, and they are still anti, they're. Uh, Medea Benjamin. They are active. Uh, in uh, Code Pink is still active in anti-war protests today. They're just really small. That's all. Yeah, and, and you know, the cynic in me believes that the reason we don't see more people taken to the street now, and keep in mind, with Cindy Sheehan and Code Pink, this was pre-social media. So they didn't have the benefit of social media. But I honestly think that this it has a lot to do with which party was in power and when they take out to the streets because oh, by, absolutely. by the time absolutely. Barack Obama was in office, Barack Obama was no stranger to going into, you know, go occupying the area. Libya, Syria, yeah. <laughs> drone yeah. strikes. Like, Barack Obama was no stranger to this at all. Mr. But you drone. didn't. Yeah, but you didn't see the protests in the street. I believe that if Donald Trump were in office, you would probably see more opposition. Um, You're out- probably right. I don't know if it would be huge, but you would definitely see more of it. Uh, at some point along the line, uh, during the, the the you know the, the the even the run up to the Trump years, maybe it had its origin in the Obama years. The Democrats became the party of the national security state, and which really, I mean, was a bit of a reversal, uh, you know, from say the first Cold War, um, and uh, you know that has shocked, and it certainly has neutered, uh, you know, any sizable protest movement whatsoever. It is very partisan. And somehow along the line, the Democrats have become the big party of war against Russia. Isn't that bizarre? It's not to say that the Republican elite aren't a party of war against Russia, but there is some populist sentiment uh, related to the Donald Trump, uh, you know, the, 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 and for whatever reason, 
not that Donald Trump ever took a strong foreign policy view of anything for more than 15 minutes yeah. uh, on, on any type of, of cogent ideological terms. I don't I don't want to be out there, you know, waving the MAGA flag or anything like that, because that is not going to result in peace in this conflict here. Even if the Republicans gain control of Congress, there's not going to be any change in U.S. aid to Ukraine. I'm sorry. That is a canard. Yeah. Now, I don't believe that I, I don't believe that they will cut off the purse strings totally. Uh, but I do believe that the Republicans will do something, at least having conversations about um, even hearings, even, you know, why are we continuing to send as much money as we can? Sure. They might have some accountability. Right. That's what they're calling for, meaning more uniform more. U.S. on the troops <laughs> on the ground inspecting weapons. But they're bean counters, Mark, bean counters. That's what they're supposed to be there for. But here's last point I want us to, to discuss in the last two minutes here is that to your point about the U.S. media and how the, the complicity of them basically being stenographers for the State Department and the DOD at this point. And the, the DNC. And the, and the <laughs> DNC, obviously, at and, this point. And the, the SBU in Ukraine. So. Well, and that too, is, is that when the Republicans come back into power next week, what's going to happen is that they have been painted into a corner. So even if they call for de-escalation, the same way Mrs. Zelenskaya uh, admonished Elon Musk for calling for peace in Ukraine, the U.S. mainstream media is going to paint the Republicans who say, hey, let's reconsider sending money to Ukraine. They're going to get painted into to a corner as Putin puppets and, and Russian Putin stooges. Putin yep, yep, yep. We've, we've, we've heard it all before. We, we've heard that. And yeah, any we've seen this. Tulsi Gabbard. Right. Tulsi Gabbard at, at American War, you know, I don't want to maybe not hero, but a veteran um, uh, and uh, She's a, combat a, medic. a strong. Hero. Yeah, a combat medic, a strong supporter of U.S. military, but painted as a Putin stooge just because, you know, in this neo McCarthyite atmosphere, just because she opposed a few things in uh, a hegemonic U.S. foreign policy. And the same will go across the board, and it goes double for any, uh, you know, uh, of the fringe Republicans who raise their head on this issue as well. It doesn't make any difference whether you're Coke or Pepsi. If you come out against the war, you will be, you will be, uh, you know, slandered and, and, and caricatured. That's the way they do it, right? That's the way they marginalize these voices. Absolutely, yes. How dare you be against war? That is the most American export there ever was in U.S. history. I think Mark would agree. Mark Sloboda, thank you so much for weighing in on that. You guys follow Mark Sloboda, the number one on Twitter, and check out his YouTube channel at RealPolitik with Mark Sloboda. Uh, don't go anywhere. We're coming back for the final hour of the show this week. You have been listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there in Rumble Land. Also on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM here in the D.C. Metro. We're in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM, and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am... The Vixen of Veritas, the Thriller in Manila, Chan, along with the original do-rag conservative, 
the atomic ultra, ultra, ultra mega Malik Abdul himself. Uh, Jamal Thomas is on his way back from Brazil. I guess his uh, thong study is over. <laughs> uh, so he'll be joining us again next week. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Well, I might need a second to shake off Mark Sloboda's Yeah, what a forecast. Friday. <laughs> what a Friday. So much for a fun Friday. Nuclear Holocaust, World War Three, all of that, you know. It's a little dark on Friday, but hey, but, it's the news. But it's real. You know, it's it's real. Yeah, it's the, the, the news. The threat of nuclear, a nuclear holocaust for the world. I mean, there are so many nukes between just the U.S. and Russia alone. Then you add in China, Pakistan, Israel, Great Britain. I mean, there there are nine countries in the world that have that are known to have nuclear weapons. Everybody should be urging for peace talks at this point. Because, Everybody. Because you know when these nine nuclear powers take sides, if we got to World War III, everybody's going to be shooting at everybody. Yeah. And the whole world is destroyed. Yep. Just, yep. just think about that for one second. And the U.S. mainstream media is right there with Mrs. Zelenskaya mm-hmm. wagging their finger saying, how dare you not support the war effort? Well, you know, her husband. You're un-American. Her you husband don't. often complains. And as we now know, Joe, Joe Biden essentially called him ungrateful because he's always talking about not getting enough assistance. Give he needs more. more. He needs more. And m- Joe Biden seems to have said this week, no, bro, this is what you're not going to do. Not even bro. It's listen, kid. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Listen, kid. <laughs> you can see him say that. Look, kid. Listen, kid. (laughs) Come on, man. Right, I can see that. (laughs) As he stumbles through the come on part. Uh, But yeah, this is is literally where we're at. And if you were listening that last hour, as you know, Mark has a way of of including a little bit of humor into Mm -hmm. the darkest of stories. Mark is great. And there is nothing darker than the idea of the whole world being blown up. Because... U.S. and U.K. foreign policy is insisting on on creating this, fomenting this potential for expansion of the war. The, the, the proxy theater in Ukraine can only hold so much fighting, right, before it literally goes kaboom for everybody. And this yeah. is where we're at. And I think the American population are, are not, we're asleep at the wheel. We're driving into war, and we're asleep at the damn wheel. Yep. And that is terrifying to me. It is scary. So, you know, this. just think about this. If this is the last Christmas you get to gather around the fire, around the Christmas tree with your loved ones, this could be the last one. And I hate to sound, Uh. you know, alarmist or whatever, but I'm not alarmist about a lot of things. But this one, there is a real threat here, and, 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 and... when people say that you're being an alarmist about nuclear holocaust over this, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. Well, we literally have a U.S. president who's going around talking about nuclear Armageddon. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> the doomsday clock is down less than 90 seconds, I think. This is the first mm. time ever. Okay, the doomsday clock. So just just think about that for a second. And when the new Congress comes in, which, you know, I have, I believe my... Manila Nostradamus needle says the Republicans are coming back into power. If the the U.S. mainstream media keeps painting people into a corner because they're against 
supplying more arms to escalate more war in Ukraine. You are war hawks. You are criminals yourself. You should stop pushing for war. End of story. Um, I'll leave my rant right there because we've got some news to get to. Um, Speaking of Republicans coming back to power, there is, and this is a quote, a very distinct, very, 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 very probable possibility that Donald Trump may be at least running for the top job again in 2024. Here's a quote from his latest uh, rally in the great state of Iowa. He said, I ran twice, I won twice, and did much better the second time than I did the first, getting millions more votes in 2020 than I got in 2016. And likewise, getting more votes than any sitting president in history of our country by far. And now in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? He said, get ready. That's all I'm telling you. Very soon, get ready. So uh, I'm probably anticipating that announcement to come right after the polls close on Tuesday night for the midterms. And then over to California, where Canadian citizen David DePape, who attacked Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's husband in their San Francisco home, is apparently here in the U.S. illegally, according to lots of U.S. media outlets, uh, citing the Department of Homeland Security. So according to a statement from DHS, DePape will be deported from the U.S. after his cases are resolved. Quote, U.S. ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, lodged an immigration detainer on Canadian national David DePape with San Francisco County Jail November 1, following his October 28 arrest, according to DHS officials. So, uh, if and when he is found guilty, he will be deported and likely serve out his days in Canada. Then, new polls here, more than half of all Americans... 56%. I don't think they polled all Americans, but this poll says 56% of Americans believe that a third major party is needed in the U.S. amid dissatisfaction with how the current political parties, Democrats and Republicans, as we know, I call the duopoly, are reflecting their interests, according to a new survey. They say 61% of adults find the Republican Party's work unfavorable. 57% disapprove of the Democrat Party's job performance, according to Gallup. Now, that's an impressive rise from a survey back in 1994 that showed just 6% of Americans having an unfavorable view of both major parties. This time, that figure stands at more than a quarter. So I think they need to poll more people because I'm sure more than, well, more than half are not happy with the parties. So the political polarization plaguing America has been seen by analysts as resulting from the two-party system in the country, with some experts questioning whether the U.S. was a democracy anymore. No. Got a short answer for that, no. All right, over to international news. The UNGA on Thursday, almost, very close, almost unanimous, 
almost unanimous condemnation of the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which has been in place since shortly after the socialist revolution swept the U.S.-backed government out of power back in 1959. In that vote, 185 nations came out against the U.S. policy. Only two countries voted against the resolution, the United States itself and good old buddy Israel. Two nations abstained from the vote. Ukraine, they were like, I'm not getting involved because obviously the U.S. is greatly the majorly the benefactor to Ukraine in this ongoing conflict and Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro only having two months left in power. So most nations of the world saying the U.S. foreign policy with Cuba is a bad idea. Then China is confident that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing will actually strengthen mutual understanding and trust between the two countries and deepen cooperation. President Xi Jinping speaking earlier today on Friday. Mr. Xi and Mr. Schultz uh, met earlier on Friday at the Great Hall of the People in the Chinese capital city of Beijing. He said, quote, You are the first European leader to visit China after the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China. And it is, it is also your first visit to China after you assume the post. I'm confident that the visit will strengthen mutual understanding and trust of our two countries, deepen practical cooperation in different areas, and outline plans for the further development of China-Germany relations. That's President Xi talking with media, CCTV, China Central Television. Now the Chinese leader added that China and Germany must work together in this unstable international environment and all this chaos. Then the G7 plus Australia have agreed to set a fixed price instead of a floating price for their upcoming G7 Russian crude price cap. Quote, the coalition has agreed the price cap will be a fixed price that will be reviewed regularly rather than a discount to an index, according to the latest reports. They said this will increase market stability and simplify compliance to minimize the burden on market participants. By market participants, they mean us, the consumer. So while the initial price has not yet been set, it is expected to be agreed upon in the coming weeks. The report says, citing multiple sources familiar with the G7 talks, the price cap is set to begin December 5. So we'll find out that number shortly before that. And now speaking of polls a little earlier, French President Emmanuel Macron is seeing some new poll results for him. His approval rating dropped to its lowest number this month, according to Elab. That poll says his approval rating was just 32%, falling six points from the previous two months. Quote, this is the lowest level since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, Elab CEO Bernard Sananez was quoted saying. Then this day in history, back in 1879, the African-American inventor Thomas Elkins patents the refrigerating apparatus, better known today as your refrigerator, the icebox. So thank you, Mr. Thomas Elkins. I really enjoy having a refrigerator. 
now the electricity to keep it cold? I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what that looks like in the coming months. Back in 1922, Howard Carter discovers the intact tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun of Egypt. And this day in history, back in 2008, earth-shattering news, Barack Obama becomes the first African-American, I'll note the first minority, to be elected president of the United States, defeating John McCain in the 2008 elections there. That's going to do it for your headlines this Friday, November the 4th. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. That's, uh, I'm still reeling from the Mark thing where I'm like, okay, okay, can I, can I plan for a nuclear disaster? Can I, can I, where can I go? (laughs) Well, you know, and I I actually, because I was chuckling as you were reading it, but I agree with you. I think that they need to probably do some more polling because I imagine that even more of the American people (laughs) are not happy with the right or the left. And, and the funny thing is when they say that there, there needs to be a third party, we have third We already parties. do. We have fourth. We, they don't we, support them. We lump them all into what's called the third party. But then the media, the jerks that they are, pigeonhole and call the thir- any third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, twentieth party, they call them spoilers. Mm-hmm. They call them spoilers. That, oh, you're taking away from... No, Jill you Stein. No, well, like, you know they you blame Jill Stein. Stein. Yeah, they call Dr. Stein a spoiler. No, the whole point of democracy is you get to choose the ones you want. Right. Not only choose the two that our corrupt system mm-hmm. allows to be put on the ballot. You know, the whole way, the whole process of how we get people on the ballot is as screwed up as any any developing nation that we criticize for not having, you know, free and fair elections, just ask what's happening, you know, down in uh, North Carolina uh, with Matthew Ho. What's happened? And the Democrats, well, he he had to sue them, but he's running on the Green Party ticket for Senate. And the the DNC down there, the DNC local there in, in North Carolina did him some dirty. And... They, I mean, they were doing fake phone banks to like dissuade, you know, saying that they represented his his uh, election crew and that this, that, and the other thing. They were tricking people. They, you know, did a lot of dirty things to try to get Sounds names like wiped voter off. Suppression. Names wiped off, <laughs> wiped off the rolls that were supporting him. There, yeah, because yeah, just they do not want a third party because, like I said. This is a political duopoly in this country. It is not a two-party system. It's actually a one-party system. They just go by two different names and two different, they wear two different colors. Yep. But really, unfortunately, the third, the, the fourth estate paints the third parties into one, one, one lump sum, one lump group, and paints them as spoilers for one of the two, which is BS in my book. Um, and I'm sure our next guest We'll probably be able to win on that as well. Um, we're going to come right back after this break uh, with our next next guest, our buddy Ted Rawl. He's got a lot of opinions about a lot of things. Don't go anywhere. Uh, you'll be We'll be right back. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with Malik Abdul. Time now to bring in our last guest of the day, last guest of the week, the one and only, our good friend Ted Rawl. He is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons and articles at Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. Ted Rawl, good morning. Uh, I know you were on hold when I was giving out my little last spiel there. Uh, what do you think of this? I call it a political duopoly. The media uh, just helps to, to, they serve to paint the third party as spoilers instead of actually embracing that that is part of what makes this a democracy is that we have choices. Well, it's what would make it a democracy if we had choices, which we don't, because parties beyond the Democrats and the Republicans don't receive media coverage. They're not permitted to have ballot access. You are, um, you know, they, they are the, the Democrats, usually the Democrats, but uh, they sue to get the Green Party uh, kicked off the ballot in state after state. Republicans have done it to the libertarians to a lesser extent. Um, you know, so no, it's not a democracy. And, it's, and you know, they're getting these these uh, parties kicked off the ballot on just rank technicalities. It's not that they, you know, the, the Greens and the Libertarians don't follow the rules. They do. Uh, but, the, you know, it's a very, it, they, they kind of make it a game that, uh, you know, you need very expensive lawyers to navigate. It's very hard. So, you know, you mentioned Dr. Jill Stein. You know, I mean, the, the assumption that like someone like Jill Stein or Ralph Nader acts like a spoiler sort of relies on an on a intellectual thought exercise that just is, cannot be true, which is that if someone who would vote for, for the Greens, let's say, uh, would, if the, would otherwise have voted for the Democrats, for example, in the event that the Green wasn't there. But that's, you know, that's just not true. A lot of people who turn out for the Greens just wouldn't vote otherwise. So so it's just not reasonable to say, well, you know, those those votes would likely have been Hillary Clinton's or or Joe Biden's instead. And even if you do assume that like every Jill Stein vote would have gone to Hillary Clinton in 2016, which just cannot be true. Um, then uh, if you I look at the three key swing states that swung that election and you just arith- arithmetically uh, add her votes to Hillary's, uh, Hillary still didn't get to 270 electoral votes. So it's 100% pure fiction that Jill Stein affected the outcome of that election. And, and you know, it, even the Ralph Nader thing, which was a much bigger margin in Florida where he got a lot of votes, it's still, there's still kind of no real evidence that this deprived, you know, that he deprived Al Gore. And, and, and the whole idea is faulty. I mean, you should vote for the person that you would jump up and down screaming with joy if they were happened to be to win the election, that's who you should vote for. That's how democracy democracy is supposed to work. Anything less is, you know, then you're involved in some kind of weird gamesmanship where you're voting against yourself. <laughs> well, there's there's two things there to unpack, right? Like what you said about the Democrats and and how they're framing what democracy is. First of all, the Democrats are assuming that that vote belongs to them. That's already a a, a false. It, it's an impossible. Uh, thing to prove, right? Like they just assume, just like Malik has has made this point many times over with um, with black voters, is that Democrat Party just assumes that's theirs, right? Number one, and number two, why is it that the only time we've actually had, I'm not even going to say 
I shouldn't only say it's, it's a serious contender in the third party presidential election was was Ross Perot down in Texas. I mean, and he had to fund because he was a billionaire, had to fund his own campaign. That speaks to the whole uh, bogus, you know, uh, campaign funding, how you get on tickets and all, you know, the money, the massive amount of money involved in our so-called democracy. Are, are you you're, you're saying Ross Perot? Are you saying that Lyndon LaRouche has not been a competitive third party <laughs> candidate over the 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 I don't know how many times Lyndon LaRouche has run. I, know. I think he runs every election cycle, maybe everyone in 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 the two thousands. <laughs> I think he's doing good. But I'm sorry, go ahead. But Mark. yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about that, Ted? Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, you know, by the way, parenthetically, Perot's accomplishment, you know, he was a billionaire, right, supposedly, uh, is kind of remarkable, right? He he got almost 19% of the vote, um, and it's because basically he bought his way in. He parenthetically probably would have done even better if he hadn't dropped out in the middle of the race. Uh, he, You guys are too young to remember this, but uh, he dropped out of, of, of because he said that there were threats against his daughter's wedding, uh, and then... And then he came back uh, later and just like, well, I guess those threats never materialized or the wedding went off without a hitch and the flowers were beautiful. So I'm back in the race. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, he he really did have some momentum going. I, I always wondered what really happened there. You know, did he get some kind of deep, th- deep state threat or what happened? Uh, you know, that we'll never probably never up. know. It, it didn't add up. It was a very strange story. And, uh, you know, some people are like, well, you know, Ross Perot was loopy. Uh, there was no evidence of that except for his weird choice of uh, vice presidential candidate. loopy? Look at, look at Joe Biden right now. Yeah. And, and you know, the choice of his vice president. Now, he was loopy, Admiral Stockdale. <laughs> uh, he had at the vice presidential debate's most famous moment in history when he stepped up and he said, who am I? Why am I here? You know, it's so it's so existential. Hey, Ted, um, yesterday, it was the start of the show, I went off on a missive. I was railing against, uh, I, had some, I had some words, I had some feelings about Joe Biden's speech from Union Station, um, the same place where Starbucks had to close because of the amount of crime that was in Union Station. Um, that's where Joe Biden decided to have his speech. They cleared out all the homeless speech. people. That's, yeah. Well, in, in advance speech. of Biden actually getting there, sure. But it, once you walked around the corner, they were still sleeping, you know, on the floor or whatever. But, Ted, I was so, I, I got so angry, um, and to the, to the extent that I get angry, I got, so, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I got so angry because I was sitting there listening to Joe Biden, and he, it, 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 it was a... A, a study in manipulation. Um, he was there days leading up to a very pivotal midterm, his first midterm election cycle. Biden spent the entire speech talking about, um, as he framed it, um, political violence, voter intimidation, January 6th, and Donald Trump. That was the message from Joe Biden and, by default, the Democratic Party leading up until Tuesday. And it was, a, it was, it was divisive. It was an extension of his where um, the last time he gave a speech, he was, had this red background, and that's, he was dark Brandon then. So I don't know who FJB is this time around, but 
what are your thoughts on Biden's speech? Now, for me, it's it's consistent. It's a continuation of what Biden has been doing over the past several months, even the beginning of the year, where he talks about the existential threat that, you know, to our democracy, um, attacking this these, po- these consultant-tested ultra-maga phrases and all of these type of things. But what do you make of his speech, um, his, his midterm rally speech? I would phrase it as that. What do you make of it? Well, Malik, I, I totally agree that it was very unprecedented and I would say almost anti-American in the fact that it was attempting to demonize uh, half the country. And, uh, you know, it, there's, it, so in that sense, it was evil, but it was also incompetent because American elections are not about uh, the past, in other words, January 6th, and they're not about, uh, you know, just saying, like, vote for me because the other guys are evil. And they're certainly not about the most important thing is your right to vote for me, which is what the Democrats' <laughs> argument is about voter yes. suppression. Yeah. Like, literally, it's like, you know, we, the, the Republicans are, the mean Republicans are trying to deprive you of your right to vote for me, the Democrat. So um, that's a, you know, I, I think it's wrongheaded. It's it's foolish. I mean, just, to, just you know, a few minutes ago, uh, the new jobs numbers came out, right? Now, there's a, there's a message that Democrats could tell. The economy is the biggest issue. Republicans are are winning on inflation. But look, jobs, there's more jobs than it were expected, even after the Fed's been up to trying to drive us into a recession. He could, the Democrats could say, look, sorry, your earning power is down 5% over the last year. But if Republicans get their way, your earning power, you're going to lose your job and your earning power will be down 100% next year. So, you know, vote for us because we're the party of jobs. We stimulated the economy during the COVID lockdown blah, blah, blah. Of course, the Republican Trump also did that too, but not quite to the same extent. So there are positive messages that Democrats could tout, and they're not doing it. They're leaving it on the table. And meanwhile, you know, I think this is not going to move the needle at all. You know, this to me, the mega MAGA stuff, the ultra MAGA stuff is completely silly and ridiculous. And it's an oversell. It's an overreach, like even calling January 6th, um, you know, an insurrection. Now, that's not an insurrection. It's not even a rebellion. It's a riot. That's what happened. It was a riot. And, um, you know, it's uh, that that's what it should be called. And when you try to, you know, over, you try to gild the lily, you come off, you know, looking silly, you lose your credibility. And and you and and speaking of someone who, as far as I'm concerned, had long ago lost their credibility with me, Hillary Rodham Clinton. So a couple of days ago, she made a comment on Joanne Reed's show. Joanne Reed was asking her whether or not uh, did voters understand the, the threat the country faces if Republicans take power. Now, Hillary Clinton obviously responded, saying that she didn't think that voters really understood um, what was at stake. Well, she followed up in another interview. She kept digging? Well, yeah, she followed up in another interview, and the strategy that she's now taking is that Republicans are trying to scare voters over crime. Now, notice I I brought up Union Station for a reason. So Union Station, the Starbucks in Union Station is closing because, well, it has closed because of the amount of crime that was happening in and around Union Station. We see all over the country videos, whether it's on a subway, outside of a subway, 
on the street, if a child has, if a mother is pushing a stroller, elderly people in San Francisco, um, the people in the Asian community being knocked over their heads, all of these type of things are happening. We're seeing that they're happening over the weekend. Um, 14 people were shot in at a Halloween party. At a Halloween party in Chicago, ages 3, 11, and 13 were injured in that. We just were talking about the other day that the the rapper Takeoff was shot in Houston. So while Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton, is going around trying to push this notion that somehow Republicans are trying to scare voters with this whole crime thing, she seems to be missing that the crime is actually happening. Can you please explain what it is that Hillary Clinton is doing? Well, if the Republicans are trying to scare (laughs) the American people over crime, uh, it's working because I'm scared. Uh, I live in New York City. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it takes a lot to scare me. I've been to Afghanistan five times, uh, you know, uh, and I'm scared. Um, yesterday morning in the wee hours, a jogger was running in the West Village which of Manhattan, which is a, a pretty safe area. And she was brutally assaulted, knocked unconscious and raped on the, on the, on the running path. And this is, you know, in the five o'clock hour, sounds like in, in most places there wouldn't be many people there. There were lots of people there because it's New York City, uh, other runners. And here's the here's the real takeaway. It, according to the New York Post, it took 15 to 20 minutes before the ambulance or the police came. So they were. She was in terrible shape physically, and so you know. I mean, it, what's going on is I think that the police are standing down in cities where, like New York, where there's sort of that it's a it's a cold war with the mayor over Black Lives Matter and defund the police, and they're trying to send a lesson. Look, Democrats, if they were canny, could own to defund the police and say, look, we should defund the police because one of the reasons crime is running rampant is the police aren't responding to crime. So why are we paying them? Mm. And, you know, there's ways to, to, to you know, it. to to spin this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but instead, you know, Democrats are like, la, 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 you know, don't, don't worry. It's, it's like it's how Republicans say, well, don't worry about climate change. It's not a real thing. Democrats are like, don't worry about crime and inflation. It's not a real thing. Uh, you know, people know what's a real thing. And they know and, and there's no question that, uh, you know, the murder rate might be down in one city. But then, you know, if muggings and uh, burglaries and uh, petty robberies and thefts and thefts are up. You know, that really affects people. And there's just sort of a general sense of skeeviness in cities large and small over the all over the country right now and a sense that things are a little bit out of control that Democrats would be better off addressing rather than ignoring. Hillary Clinton knows this. And that's the thing. This is the game that they're playing. Joe Biden knows this. And so instead of talking about and I, 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 I was literally shocked um, that. Well, I, I was shocked that he didn't have a a positive message for Democrats going essentially a reason to vote. Well, well, so talk about his if he doesn't. Yes, the inflation, that's not really an inflation reduction act, but he can talk about things that his administration yes. did. He chose not to. But, but look, here's the thing. The impetus for this, you know, like unscheduled last minute speech. Yeah. Right. The impetus behind that was the violence. Um, that happened to the Pelosi family, right? You're right. So that was what triggered everything. And that's how he opened and, the speech, right. talking about Pelosi's Ad- husband. Addressing uh, Mr. Pelosi's condition and, and the situation. So here's the thing, right? I'm I'm from California. 
and I have friends and family all up and down the state. And everybody tells me how bad the crime is all up and down the state. Friends and family in San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, in the Napa wine area even. I mean, it's not so bad, but it's, it's, it's Napa. It's never that bad. But, <laughs> but and then Southern California and all over Southern California, not so much in San Diego, Marine base there, just saying. Uh, coincidence, I don't know. But it's a, a red pocket in California, San Diego, because it's a lot of military, right? But generally speaking, up and down the state of California, crime is so way, way up. The trains are getting robbed. The trains, the stuff coming off the ports, the truckers are getting robbed when they pull over to get gas to take whatever shipment. They're being monitored from the harbor, from the port, and being monitored of, oh, that guy's shipping, he's got electronics in the truck. He's got whatever, right? Name anything. These these people are being robbed, and, and these, are, these are people working, during, right? President Biden doesn't address that because crime isn't real, but it's only real when it hits the political elite, right? And, and this couldn't be more of a gift to the Republicans in the sense that now we find out that, that David DePape is here illegally from Canada. So I, I don't know, maybe build a, a northern border as well, a northern, uh, northern fence, northern <laughs> wall. I don't know if that's one, one suggestion, but this is... This plays right into the Republican talking points of illegal immigration. And if he weren't here, that would have never happened to Mr. Pelosi. But my argument, being a Californian, and my heart is always, that's home, right? Is the real problem is the crime, is the crime level happening across California. Not only is it the most expensive state to live in, but the level of crime he is part and parcel of that crime. He's a mentally ill man, clearly drug problem, according to the neighbors, right? He has a drug problem. Lived in a, a Lived in an abandoned school bus out front of a pot flag BLM house uh, owned by a, a woman called Gypsy Taub, who is a known nudist activist. He used to, he used to think he was Jesus. Right, all kinds of weird stuff, Right. Because, of course, it's, it's Northern California. And Hillary of Clinton course. says Republicans crime, are trying right. to scare, the, scare right. voters because of crime. So which is it? Which is it, Ted? Is crime bad because it's so bad it, it affected the Pelosi household? Or is it what Hillary Clinton says, living in her gilded cage, that she's safe from crime, so no crime is happening? Yeah, you know, I, I, by the way, this is another way that Democrats could flip, could flip the, the, the script. They could say, look at Paul Pelosi. He was attacked by a mentally ill a person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, you know, mental, we need mental yes. illness parity in this country. We need to do a better job dealing with the homeless because he was like basically homeless, this guy. Um, you know, it, it, there's, they definitely can make it an anti poverty, anti mental illness kind of thing. Um, so there's a way to, to do that. But again, they don't seem to know how. Uh, you know, yeah, I was struck by that too. The, the fact that, like, well, if it happens to you know someone who I know personally in the political class, then suddenly this becomes cause for a speech. Uh, it, remind, um, it reminded me sort of of the beer summit under Obama, uh, mm-hmm. where yeah. it was like, well, this very prominent Harvard professor who's a buddy of mine, oh. uh, you know, has has gotten hassled by you know the by the by the local constables so now we're going to this becomes a big story and we're going to talk about it you know the, the, that for obama um 
this, you know, it's, it's the same sort of thing, right? As opposed to an issue, you know, a particular event that shocks the country, or in this case, we haven't really had one particular event. It's just been a series of them. Uh, you know, the mass shootings, um, the kids bringing guns to school. Uh, there's, there's just like things are out of control. So it's like if you want to just say you could call it disorder, anarchy, whatever you want. But the point is that, uh, you know, you don't have to let Republicans own this issue. You should never let the other side control the narrative on any political issue. I mean, that's just politics 101. Yeah, yeah but, and they're dropping... Paul Pelosi's not the only one that's getting whacked in the head with a hammer. Right, and see, I would be more convinced by what... Well, no, I wouldn't. Um, other people may have been more convinced by what Joe Biden said. If Joe Biden had come out, and I don't know if he ever did, but he, he certainly did not give a speech. I don't know if he personally condemned the guy who showed up in front of Brett, Justice Kavanaugh's no. home. I don't think he— I never saw anything. Okay, yeah. No, I don't so, think so. So yeah. you didn't say anything. You're, you're, you're making this speech about political violence. You start the speech talking about how political violence is wrong— but yet you said nothing about Kavanaugh and the other people who were protesting outside the homes of other justices. It wasn't just Kavanaugh. Right. He's well, the, the only one where the guy the showed up. Justices. Right. The the other conservative justices. But I you could take Biden a little more seriously if he kind of condemned those sort of things. I, I, I said yesterday, uh, th- this is an extension of what we were seeing even during the Trump era where— you had Sarah Sanders and her family. You know, they're getting kicked out of restaurants. She has small children. Small children. Even before Donald Trump was elected, the the the, the guy who uh, was a JetBlue airline, he um, harassed Ivanka, Ivanka Trump when she was with her kids, and yeah. he approached her then. Like these type of things happen, and, and and there is no such from both the media and definitely the Democratic Party coming out and condemning these things. I believe that you can should condemn it. Violence is wrong. But common decency would say, would dictate that Period. you say violence is wrong. When you see it, you speak out against it. It doesn't Period. matter what jersey they wear. Mm-hmm. It's wrong. And, and I think in the case with Joe Biden, I think this was, this will, uh, will not think. I know this was definitely strategic because I said it the very next day, um, after the t- attack on Paul Pelosi, well, actually the day of, of the attack on Paul Pelosi, you had Republicans, their leaders in the House, you had McConnell, you had all sorts of Republicans and conservatives coming out immediately condemning this. And I think that because they aren't able to tie this around the neck of Republicans saying that Republicans are essentially condoning this or whatever, that Joe Biden is taking this approach. I don't I don't think that there is anything um, good about what he's doing. I think it's a very dangerous thing for us not to just say to ourselves, when we have violence in the country, we should condemn it on both sides of the aisle. And I don't expect this to get better. And when Donald Trump finally announces, because I do be believe Tuesday that that's going to happen. the last poll closes. He's going he's gonna to do it. But when Donald Trump, we're going to spend the next two years, unfortunately, relitigating these same type of fights over and over again. That's right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how the you know people just the Dem, you know democrats like biden just don't understand how you know transparent and uh, and obvious they look you know i'm a i'm a left leaning political cartoonist and when there's a censorship battle uh usually uh, you know with, let's say a conservative cartoonist is censored uh, you know, you I'm one of the first people to come to their aid, and I'm like probably less likely to talk 
about censorship against a left-leaning cartoonist because they get lots of help from the other lefties. But it really shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're in the political class, you sh- you have good uh, self-interest in not wanting political violence at all against anyone. Uh, you know, and, and similarly, all cartoonists should be sticking together. Um, and it's weird to think that Biden is, you know, is doesn't even get that, right? I mean, it's... Uh, like when, but these things have become oddly partisan, where you just sort of sit back and if it happens to the other side, you just sort of like chuckle quietly over drinks with your friends, and you don't, and you don't, and you don't chime in. I mean, it's actually it is a it is sick. It's just awful. Like, yeah, it's very sick. And and you know, we were talking about just that, um, you know, voters and the sentiment out there and crime particularly. And do you know who's really concerned about crime? Suburban white women. Now, everybody's concerned about crime, let's be clear. But suburban white women are now shifting to the GOP column. They're shifting back to the GOP column after fleeing um, because of Donald Trump. And one of the issues is crime. So, yeah, the Democrats are they're totally out to lunch. Totally not reading the room when it's concerning yeah, what the I, Republican I people saw, are saying. I just saw a poll yesterday. I forget where... But the poll basically showed among um, minority voters, crime was their number one concern, whereas with white voters, it was like it was like 60 something percent of of black and other minority voters, 60 something percent crime was their number one concern for the white voters. It was literally half in the other direction. It was, I forget what they said their concern was. I think maybe the economy. Probably the economy. I think the economy, but it was like 33 percent. So. When you look at it from that perspective, well, yeah, crime is is a major concern to minorities because disproportionately minorities live in hi, like high crime areas. That's that's that, that's a very good point. And and everybody, you know, as we can continue to say, everybody is concerned about crime. Yeah, it impacts groups but differently. They don't seem to care until it hit Paul Pelosi literally. And I'm sorry to make that pun. Hit Paul Pelosi on the head. The crime is everywhere. No, they don't seem to care unless it is a police officer shooting a minority well, or something like that. Or you have another kind of situation crime. like a Dylan Roof who killed the— Dylan Roof, yes. D- Dylan Roof. At uh, the Mother Emanuel Church. Yeah. But that's the thing, They right? They care about crime then. But when it comes to looking in— well, Ted- we're not hearing much of the defund the police now, are we? No. Um, <laughs> but like I said, uh, you know, here in New York, I'm feeling like defunding the police since, you know, I'm paying for them and I don't see them anyway. So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's kind of like what I'd like to get what I'm paying for. No, we're not hearing that. Um, you know, I don't really agree that it's the absolute worst political slogan of all time. It's a pretty bad one. But, uh, you know, it's it's not as bad as people think. Um you know, I, I think that, uh, the, you know, policing need is to, needs to be modified. I almost think that if you want to be a policeman, you shouldn't be allowed to be. Uh, it's the, it's like being a corrections officer, the kind of, you know, what kind of person grows up as a little boy or girl and thinks, you know, I really want to be a jailer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, it's like you're probably a sadist, right? Or, you know, at the same best, guy that's you, like, you, I want to be a repo man. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's like it's just it's a little, you know, maybe only a psychotic person would want to do that. And, you know, I, I think with the reality of policing, you know, you're, it's, 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 with the, in this day and age, look, there's a lot of things that 
you could do to to reform policing that no one talks about. Like, for example, uh, take away uh, make take away the idea that cops should be revenue generators. Like, you yes. know, take away like writing tickets. Uh, you know, like for example, uh, speeding tickets should or should not involve money. Like, let's just say you get like you get a speeding ticket, and if the idea is public safety, just have it be points on your license, and if you keep speeding, they take away your license. But don't charge money because what that does it is it is incense the authorities to say, "Hey, officers, go out there and write more tickets." You know, whether the, whether the person was speeding or not, and uh, you know, and write them more against people who are less likely to retain a lawyer, like say people of color or able so to pay it's it. Like, yeah, and I look, I don't think anyone ever dreamed of becoming a police officer in order to write speeding tickets or parking tickets. They they did it because they wanted just to fight crime. And bad guys. So it's you know, and and that alone would stop. Think about all the stupid stops, like Sandra Bland, right? For the mm-hmm. turn, you know, not failing to use her turn signal yeah. uh, when the police officer came behind. I mean, you know, that would not have happened. Uh, she would not have been pulled over at all uh, under this kind of reform. So there are things that they could do that don't mean you know, being an adversarial relationship with the police. I I think the police would welcome changes like that. I I know that they would. I do community rides um, where I live here in D.C. So I do community rides and the the police, they want to have better relationships in the communities. But when you're raised in environments um, like one that I live in now, one that I'm very familiar with, where you're kind of indoctrinated from an early age to have a very antagonistic um, relation with police, this is kind of what you get. I think the big, the biggest problem with the whole defund the police movement was the phrasing itself, because what they were talking about was reallocating funds to fund other things like mental health or other training. Um, but it's hard to, you, you can't, you don't get reallocate from um, the, the defund. Those two things aren't the same. So when you say defund, people mean people like, will literally. receive it as defund. So they came back later and said, "Well, no, what we're trying Terrifying. to say is that we." But the, the 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 cake or whatever was already made by that baked by that point. You couldn't change that. But Ted, since since you are in New York, I wanted to just get your quick thoughts on what's happening in the, uh, well, we could talk about the congressional races if you want, but the New York race, the, gov- the gubernatorial race oh, there. That's a shocker. Yeah. I mean, what what's happening with Hochul and, oh, gee, I can't think of the, um, oh, gee. Yes, Zeldin. Congressman Zeldin, yeah. Yeah, what's going on there? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's a case of... Uh, you know, Hochul is a is an is a sitting incumbent, but she's a weak one because uh, she wasn't elected. She was elected lieutenant governor, which no one pays attention to <laughs> in New York. Um, and so she came in after Cuomo was forced to step down, and uh, and then you know she had basically a year in office to you know launch a charm offensive, which pretty much never happened. Right. So um, she's not the worst governor ever, but it's sort of like there's there's limited enthusiasm for her. Um, Lee Zeldin is really a rabid right winger, um, really kind of crazy. I used to live out in his district on Long Island uh, for many years. So I'm you know, I followed him closely, but he's really outperforming. And it really seems like the stars have come into perfect alignment for him with the crime issue. And, you know, I think what's happening is that Hochul doesn't have 
the credibility to talk about crime to New York City residents because she's a creature of Western New York. She's from Buffalo. Uh, she, you know, it's kind of like we don't see her here. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe Buffalo is a is a is a pit of of dangerous violent crime. I don't know. But you know, here in New York City, where most New York State residents live, you know, it's pretty heinous uh, post pandemic. And so, you know, I think Zeldin's closer to it. You know, he's from Nassau County, uh, just next to Queens in Brooklyn. Uh, I think he's he also did very well in the debates. I think, uh, you know, he's more battle tempered uh, from having served in Congress. Uh, I think it's, you know, it, it could he could win this. And if he did, it would be absolutely a seismic shift uh, in because it's not like there's never been a Republican governor in New York. I mean, we had uh, George Pataki not that long ago, but. George Pataki was an old country club Republican. You know, Lee Zeldin is a zealot. He's a (laughs) ultra mega, (laughs) (laughs) sort of, uh, you know, ish. I mean, he certainly has the ultra mega people on his side. And uh, so, yeah, I I mean, I I think it's like there's a lot of discontent. The the irony here is that Cuomo would probably wipe wipe the floor with Zeldin, but Hochul can't do it. Even, even, I mean, if he were let's let's say hypothetically able to run right now with given his covid history and sexual abuse and assault claims and would he still could he still win i think so i think i think because you know right now uh people are you know new yorkers are looking for toughness and they're not they're not seeing it in from hokel uh cuomo you know he for all of his faults he was a goon you know, I mean, he was he, he ran a, a I mean, he ran an old fashioned Albany political machine that kneecapped anybody who got in his way. Um, you know, that's kind of what people are looking for in a time of crisis like this. OK. And an, an, another surprise race to me. I mean, and it's very unfortunate um, for poor John Fetterman against Dr. Oz. Uh, last night, some latest polling showing Dr. Oz pulling ahead. For really? the first time in Pennsylvania. Wow. Yeah, that yeah. is a first because he's been kind of trailing. Slightly trailing, but within the margin of error. But now he's pulling ahead within the margin of error. Um, wow. But, you know, it's, it's, I, there's a lot of, a lot of things to be said about poor John Fetterman because, you know, he's plain spoken. He's a big guy. You know, people seem to like him. He was very popular as lieutenant governor. He was a popular lieutenant governor, unlike um, Kathy Hochul. But, you know, this stroke, it's very sad. It's unfortunate. But I think that last, that debate performance, I think it brings into question, you know, his his mental capacity and his ability to actually serve as a senator. What do you, what do you think about that, Ted? Well, honestly, um, you know, the only reason that Fetterman's been in the lead and that it's kind of a 50-50 race now, it's just because so many Pennsylvanians are just knee-jerk Democrats. Um, the, you know, the, the fact is, look, I'll just say it. It's sad. You're right. But it's ridiculous to think that someone whose job is to uh, is in the realm of words, you know, and it, to think that you know, this is a person who not only has to be able to speak in public— but a, a lot of behind the scenes buttonholing in the cloakroom, uh, you know, t- meeting people in the Capitol subway and, and, and trying to get them on board with co-sponsoring your bill and whatnot. I mean, I'm sorry, life isn't closed caption. 
and not every stroke is the same, but this stroke appears to make, to have look it's like this maybe 3 years from now he would be recovered enough to be able to serve but i think you know voters have to look at well is he ready to serve january 2nd and the answer is no and it's i mean it's i mean it's ridiculous really i mean um he had you know, some some people have been saying that he shouldn't have democrats shouldn't have allowed him to debate I think he had to debate. I, I, I admire his I admire. courage and his candor wow. uh, for doing it. He It was the right thing to do for the voters for and really for himself as well. But it's like, but it, and, and I think, frankly, I watched the whole thing. Um, it, it was pretty painful at times. I actually thought he did better than I, than I expected in some ways, uh, but, but it was bad. You know what I mean? It's very painful. I mean, my, I my mother. I watched it like, wow. My mother is is a, a very rare survivor of an aneurysm, right? And she was in a coma and all of that. And, and it, literally, I mean, we didn't know if she was ever going to wake up, much less be a vegetable or not. That's what we thought. Miraculously survived. She's, I would say, you know, compared to what she was pre-aneurysm, I would say she's like 90%. I mean, like physically and, and her motor skills. and But watching that Fetterman. said... That said, the road to recovery after my mom, let's say my mom woke up from that stroke, woke up from the, sorry, the, the coma. Would I want to run her for office right. and put her in a position to make decisions on anything? No, I had to take guardianship of my mom and make decisions for her because she was not, she did not have the mental capacity right. it to make your brain. those decisions. It's, she had a brain injury. John Fetterman had a brain injury. Like, this is just, I have so many questions about his, and, and his I don't family. Think that, and his, yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, especially now that you're talking about the polls, we'll see whether or not Oz ultimately pulls it out. Yeah. I, I don't think that John, I don't think that Oprah endorsing John Fetterman yes. against her friend, Oz. Right? Isn't yeah. that crazy? I, I don't think that that's going to help at all. Uh, Ted, I actually believe that instead of Oz, that they should have chosen McCormick. I think McCormick would have been a better candidate against Fetterman than Oz because the, the, the gap between Fetterman and Oz, I think, was literally like 0.1%. It was like 31.2 versus 31.1. So, but I honestly think that um, I, McCormick would have had a better shot than Oz, because Oz was kind of a flawed candidate from the beginning. But, hey, we'll see what happens next week, because if he pulls it out, then that means that Republicans— I, I think that if Oz wins, Warren, I mean, Walker wins. Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker. Uh, I, final thoughts, predictions, Ted, in case yeah. we don't talk to you before Tuesday. Final thoughts and predictions on next Tuesday. All right, so this is very out on a limb. I'm not super—I'm not really sure about this. But I think both Oz and Walker are going to win. I mean, there's still time. Don't worry. I mean, we've got a couple more minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, well, Walker we has definitely been Blake leading. Masters starting yeah. to rise. Vance, is, Vance will win. Yeah, Jim Vance will definitely win. JD. Is that his uh, name, Jim? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. J.D. Vance oh. will definitely win. Um, it looks at this point, Adam Laxalt out of Nevada is going to be winning. He's been leading in the polls against Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the incumbent senator. So... Definitely seem like we're going to get that. I'm not too... Blake Masters, even though he's closed the gap, Blake Masters hasn't actually led in any polls. And because it's Mark Kelly and he's an already an incumbent, it's a Democratic seat, 
I'm not so convinced about Blake Masters. I don't know what you think about that, Ted. I'm not so convinced either. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's still going to be, it's going to be a very, very good night for Republicans. No question. Yeah, because we're deb- we only need four to take the House, and we absolutely, absolutely are going to get that. Is just a question is by what margin? Yeah, I say twenty five. That's what? a good number. No, that's a so that's so twenty five. Yeah, so um, if you follow like Cook and many of the other, so twenty five is kind of the sweet spot of what people are saying. The red wave actually will be above that twenty five number. Wow. So, but I agree with Ted. I mean, I think twenty five is a good sweet spot. Well, in case we don't talk to you before, then I, I have a feeling we'll talk to you after, uh, Ted Rawl. Thank you so much for weighing in on that, our friend. Ted Rawl, check out his stuff at Rawl.com, R-A-L-L. Follow him on Twitter by his name, Ted Rawl. Thank you, Ted. Have a great weekend. All right, that brings us to the close of We're closing this week. it down. What, My first week back. Your first week back. We're happy to have you. Happy I've to done, be back. And, and as I've said, when Jamal was here, I, I'll say it again and on this Friday. Y'all ain't got rid of me yet. (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) Malik will still continue to be here. Uh, That's for sure. We enjoy having you. Uh, It adds a fun dynamic. Uh, All right, let's leave that right there. Uh, End of my first week back. Thank you for being with us. All of you rumblers out there, everybody out in Radioland, thank you to our producers, our engineer. And happy anniversary. And happy anniversary, husband. That's going to do it for us. Thank you for listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Have a wonderful weekend. No nuclear holocaust. Fault Lines.